This is where conspiracy on the wild side meets the perspective of a lifetime. This is the Free Zone with your host, Freeman. Hello, and welcome to the Freeman Perspective. Well, con conceptual deviance is probably the best two words to describe Paul Laffoli, my guest tonight. Paul attended uh, Brown University, graduating in 1962 with honors in classics, philosophy, and ancient history, or art history. Uh, in 63, he went to Harvard Graduate School of Design and apprenticed with sculptor, sculptor Mirko Basaldella. Basaldella. Basaldella, right. thank you. <laughs> I was so trying not to stumble over all this. Yeah, right. uh, but you were dismissed for conceptual deviance, uh, saying that your projects weren't good nor bad, but currently and technologically, physically impossible. Well, uh, they, gave, they gave me diphthongs for grades. You know, like I'd get AEs. Oh, yeah, and, you either pass so or fail. so I asked them what the hell that meant. <laughs> yeah. You know, I said, was it A for architecture, E for engineering? He says, no, that uh, we figured that we love your concepts, but they'd fall down. So uh, they were accusing me of being like uh, Bramante Ruinante, you know, the, uh, uh, the, <laughs> the, the Renaissance architect that, that actually had buildings fall down. Yeah. And well, anyway, I, I, you know, and then they also said things like that I, I was over involved in my work. And I said, that's kind of strange because I thought in a professional school, that's the time to be over involved. And, and then, and then they didn't seem to respond to that. So the next question I asked them is, is there a safe involvement level, like a safe suds level in a washing machine? That didn't help at all, so I knew at that point I was out of there. <laughs> yeah, I don't think Harvard was ready for your ideas. I mean, you have definitely stepped out into the future. And, I mean, Alex well, Gray... Well, the first day that... Uh, no, not, not the first day, but, but the first day we had a, uh, a socially-defined uh, problem. You know, like, how do you... Uh, create housing that is not costly. Now, that, that's the same thing that's in the, the book by Ayn Rand, The Fountainhead, yes. you where know, Howard Rourke has to come up with, with, this, with this urban design project that where you could rent a place for $10 a month. Well, this is in the 1940s, so that, that might have been possible. But, but anyway, uh, it, 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 it was a phony problem to them because they never thought that anybody could actually solve it. And, and so you'd end up with the same kind of liberal nonsense that we have today. In other words, you have to have uh, you know, something funded by the government, and people would live in there and, and, and be financially supported, rather than having a house they could afford. So that, that, that's when I started coming up with my idea about uh, how to make live buildings. By, uh, by grafting vegetation together and, uh, you know, just, just not, uh, not living in the trees, but, but making forms that, that would be connected to each other. Uh, so you'd have lighting that would be made by tobacco plants that would be gene-spliced with luciferin, really? which, which can light up to about 
25 watts, because you, you, you can take, you can photograph it in the dark. You, you can photograph the plant, and and then with the with a botanical engineer, uh, you could bring that up to 100 watts, which is the light level that you need. But the whole point was to to create a uh, a vegetable chimera which could then go to seed and and then once that happens you could get the, the the botanical engineer back and said can you speed up the growth of this so that the whole thing would reproduce itself in 3 months which is the average time it takes to build a house right and and so eventually you'd you'd end up uh giving people a bag of seeds and say go go work in a swamp with with a the land is practically free. Go plant your house, huh? Yeah, and, and, and let it grow. And uh, it, it's the, the secret is ginkgo biloba. You know, the, that uh, th that leaf that everybody takes to uh, help their uh, their IQs increase. Uh -huh. And uh, but it, it it also has it's the it is, it is the oldest flowering plant. Uh, on the on the earth, it was around during the time there were dinosaurs, so that, that the, uh, the the current plants can be grafted to each other, like uh, conifer to deciduous, uh, you know, like uh, fruits to vegetables, g grasses to vines, you know, in that way. Uh, uh, it's like, and it the whole thing would come out very similar. To the way we we've started to to deal with uh, plant nature, like we've made it, the, the uh, navel orange. Uh -huh. Navel orange didn't exist before we did, and we got it down so that one end of it is where you have the seeds, and then, and then the rest is where you have those nice, uh, nicely shaped sections that fit perfectly in human mouth. Now, I remember you mentioning in uh, your lecture in Portland how the ginkgo biloba didn't actually follow the phi ratio or the Fibonacci sequence. No, it, it, it doesn't because the, uh, the, the, the so-called divine proportion, uh, the logarithmic spiral, or um, it's, it's the, the equiangular spiral, is, is actually the spiral of death, not life. Hmm. And, and people uh, you know, still consider this as, as something that uh, that should be sought after in in, in architecture. I mean, it's, it's p people who are, who are into uh, uh, sacred geometry think that's the source of it. You know, like the Fibonacci series, uh, which is the same thing. And and and, w and what it really does, it 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 emphasizes the uh, the fact that the reason we have that pro those proportions all through a body. Is that when we mature, we're ready to die. You know, and so, so we, we start we're starting the dying process. So, like a baby, uh, is to us all ill proportioned. Like the head's big, you know, and uh, the body's soft, and, and you can you can flop it around a little bit. Whereas the, when when you reach a certain age, if you, you fall down, your bones all break. The uh, <coughs> So that I, I've never I've never thought of that as as anything but something that's that's death driven. It's a, it, as a spiral as the logarithmic spiral is the opposite of the Archimedes spiral. The, the Archimedes spiral starts at, at a core or, or an origin, and and uh, it, it's it's uh, r radius increases arithmetically 
So as you're going around, it's like a coil of rope. So out at the cosmic periphery, it's a complete circle. So there's, there's no, the only way to come in to the center then is to make an angle. And so you make an equal, equal angle. You know, and so you're going around, and, and of course then the, the equiangular spiral makes an infinite number of revolutions around the focus but never arrives, making the, uh, the, the, the source of the, of the origin grow in, increasing, but it, it, it eventually will, will kill what's, what's coming towards it. All right. <laughs> well, thinking on these lines now, I, I just went around the nation and filmed a bunch of uh, Kabbalistic architecture that I found in, in Nashville, Tennessee. And what uh -huh. do you think about yeah. these ancient structures like the pyramids, the temple in Luxor, and how they're equated to the, uh, the, golden, the golden mean? And how, what, what is it that, that Kabbalistic architecture is supposed to induce? What should this... Well, I, I think when when you when you study the Kabbalah, it's it's the tree of life, the the, uh, the you know the the three the three pillars and and the ten globes are arranged in the in in the in a shape that's not dissimilar to to a lot of the works of Frank Lloyd Wright, and uh, and, and so I, I remember like in 1981. Uh, a guy came into into my uh, studio, which at that time was on Bromfield Street, and and he said he wanted to, wanted me to do uh, a farm for him. And I said, how about taking the the the, the Kabbalistic tree of life and and have incidents at each one of the globes? Because like when 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 people study the, the the Kabbalah, I mean they're they're thinking more about the paths. As opposed to what's inside the globes, right? So, so I, I took I took the the uh, the general symbolism of each one of the globes, and and, and filled that out like at, at Teparas in, in the center. I made that big and and produced the uh, the house of Adam Codman, which is a five pointed star, and it has uh, you you know like it had in an elevation. It has angled uh, surfaces, so if you have glass, you can have lights on uh, in, inside at night, and because of the angle that you can see out, so it's, it's not con confining. Uh, in, in, in the center of it, I had the, this uh, open uh, a deck with, a, with an open platform to uh, uh, something below, uh, and I, I figured out how to grow a tree upside down because that's what uh, is going on in the, you know in one in one way of describing the uh, um, the, the tree of Sephiroth, it has its roots in heaven and its foliage on earth and 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 so I, I took uh, five palm trees and and, and put them in, uh, in you know in in like uh, a little more than than, than pots. Uh, I had a way to deal with the taproot going down to the to the ground, and and then I bent them over, and then and then at the lower part I connected a padanus tree, which is in the same family, and grafted those together. So it it had one uh, grouping of foliage uh, aiming down. 
so somebody could sit uh, on, on a seat and, and, and meditate uh, under this thing of where you're actually being involved with a live tree that's upside down. Now, uh, I, I noticed later, like, Robert Smithson tried to bury a tree uh, upside down, but, but that's, the thing was dead. And, and uh, some someplace in the, in Western Massachusetts, I I, I forgot I, Mass Mocha, like somebody has some trees upside down, but the thing again they're dead. So I I, I had mine. It, it was a live tree, which is supposed to be, and then I had things like uh, heliports. I had um, uh, you know like. Like beehives, I, I had all, all all kinds of. Uh, I had burrows where where you store vegetables on the ground. You, you know, so the, the, these were again parts of these uh, the, these uh, in, inside of the globes. And um, then around the whole thing, I had a, uh, a, 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 a the labyrinth of gnosis, where you where it's not a maze. It, it goes in one direction. So the, the whole thing was a thousand feet long, so it was like a football field. The whole thing. And, and then so when somebody entered the the beginning of the labyrinth, uh, say like the postman's bringing something. Nine miles later, he'd he'd come out to a place where where he could enter the uh, the field. So for, for the sake of practicality, I, I built an, an an underground entrance, so people could get into it by a car. But from from the outside, it, it looks exactly like uh, the, the the tree of Sephiroth. and and I thought at the uh, at the opening of this because he, he wanted to build it in in West Virginia, where uh, where land is relatively cheap, and uh, so that the then at the opening of it, you you'd have a, a, a holograph. Of, of what was there would be lifted off and 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 connected to the to the end of the of the you know the physical one and then there'd be another one because in 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 the Kabbalah the, there were 40 worlds so it isn't just 10 you know see each uh, each there there so there are four of these of these shaped forms and and then uh, Darth, which which is un, under Kether at the top, is the is what connects to uh, to the the, ne the next series of ten. I see. Is that making any sense to anybody well, or what? Well, yeah, what? <laughs> because okay, I right. have looked into this. Uh, yeah. But I was more curious about now. I mean, you you pop up in the strangest places. I cannot believe that you were an architect on the World Trade Center. Oh. Well, the, the reason that happened is that I, I, I was, because of being thrown out of, of uh, GSD, Harvard Graduate School of Design, um, I, went, I went to see my uncle, who was an architect, who's now passed on, and he, the first thing that happened when I walked through the door of his office, he held his hand up, he says, you can't work here, I, I heard about you. And I said, I, I didn't want that. I, I just wanted, like, some advice. And he says, well, what do you expect me to say? <laughs> you screwed yourself for the rest of your life. And, uh, and then on, on his desk at that time was 
the the uh, a, a copy of Progressive Architecture, which now no longer exists. It's all been taken over by Architectural Record, and and on the cover, uh, there there were uh, photographs of work by Frederick J. Kiesler. Now my eyes popped out of my head. You know, you know, like in uh, G Jim Carrey's movie The Mask. Right. You know, he's sitting there, <laughs> which is actually uh, a reference to some some uh, comic strip movies from the 1940s that you know the creatures would do that. But but anyway, it was it was a good metaphor because I'm I'm sitting there and, and and my uncle could see that and he says, "Well, never never work for him." And and I said. Every time that I talked to this guy, I discovered that he was a, an absolute source of inverse knowledge, meaning no matter what he said, if I did the opposite, I, I would get into some really interesting stuff. So the, the next day I was on a train to New York and, and, and knocking on Kiesler's door, or, or actually writing to him uh, a, a letter of introduction. I, ha I had to write 17 letters before he'd respond to me. I was, I was living at the, at the YMCA for a while there. And, uh, and, and eventually, uh, he, uh, he, you know, he said, okay, you can work. And, and I said, I sent you the exact same letter. The only difference was that you responded after the 17th time. And he says, well, don't you realize why? And, and I and I said, what are you talking about? Well, that's it's the number seventeen. And uh, so he said that that like uh, uh, Borromini, who did the um, that small chapel in Rome, the Saint Carlo of the Four Fountains, San Carlo or Quattro Fontano, uh, had seventeen points of perspective. I designed furniture that has seventeen functions. It's a it. It's almost like because it, it adds a, the one and the seven adds up to an eight, so that, that that's that's like a, a a very high powered number. And he said you you lived at 17 Taylor Road in Belmont, Mass. So I I at least thought that that you would have figured that out. And I said, my God, the guy was right. Now this <laughs> isn't Yamasaki, right? This is no, 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 no. This is Kiesler. Okay, okay. Okay. Kiesler. So, but then uh, after working for him a few days, he said, "Well, uh, I I can't pay you much, so you're going to have to get a day job to live in New York." So I I started going around and and trying to find places, and and I'd go to different offices and. They asked me if if I could do working drawings. I'd say no. Can you do renderings? No. Can you do this, that, the next thing? And I said no. And this I'd be, I'd be ushered out. I came to the seventeenth uh, interview, which was for em Emery Roth and Sons. Said the, the whole the whole same routine. I, I didn't want to lie because they they'd catch me in a lie almost immediately. I said okay, well put them in the design group. I said the design group. That's that's where people end up who have uh, you know a, 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 almost like a PhD in in architecture and had years of design could go in there the the ones that are actually designing the building besides all all all, uh, all the flunkies that, that work in places right. and and so I I I was walking two inches off the ground 
And uh, so and then a few days later, I discovered why I, w I was in the, uh, in the design group, because it turns out that, that uh, the, the Emery Roth & Son is what they call in the trade a pencil, meaning big-time designers come in from other parts of, of the country, and then when, when they go to New York, if, if they don't have a friend's office, they use the, the Emory Roth as, as a liaison so that they can do joint ventures and, and they'll have a place to land and, and, the, and they'll, they'll have a plush office with conference rooms and, and, and a whole crew uh, of, uh, of, you know, of moles uh, over drafting boards are, are now looking into computers to do their buildings. Right. And uh, so I, I, then, then the deflation started to occur. So I, I was sitting there for maybe two or three weeks, and I basically wasn't doing anything. So I go up to the guy who, who was my boss, Mr. Gershon, and I, I said, Mr. Gershon, I said, Why, what am I supposed to do here? He says, nothing's taken place, or I'm, I'm not getting any work. I just come in every day at 9 o'clock, sit there till 5, and that's the end of it. And he said, well... Just go back to to your drafting board and think great thoughts. Now, now I don't know about you, but I never heard anybody say that for real. You know, I, I thought that that was always some kind of uh, movie joke. You know, when somebody would would say a thing like that, but I I did it, and then and then another week goes by, and uh, you know, and then I went through the same routine. And uh, w what had happened is that before I came there, uh, y y Yamasaki had done a joint venture w w with the Emory Roth and Sons on the World Trade Center. And during the an initial meeting, uh, they they had uh, you know they had the design group, the people who were in it before I was there, and uh, that th he he came in. Uh, Yamasaki with his entourage and a big model. And I remember seeing the models, a fantastic one. This is when they made models uh, out of plastic where you, you, would, you, you would cut the pieces with little tiny saws and, and table saws that were miniature. So that they, they, you'd build the building, the real thing, but it would only be a miniature. And uh, so he, he was five feet one, and he had a big pile of papers, so on his tiptoes, he taps the top of this pile, and he says, well, boys, fill her up. And so somebody in, uh, said, what do you want, high test or regular? This is the way they, they define the difference between grades of gasoline at that time. Right. And uh, so, so uh, he went livid. He li this guy told me he was, went purple turned around and walked out, and they figured they lost the job. And, and so they, they, they were just sitting around wa waiting for somebody else to come in. So in, in, in this second uh, interview, uh, I, w <coughs> I was sitting there. I said, I, I can't take this any longer. I've I got to go someplace where I'm actually doing some work. And uh, so there was a scowl came over his face. And then, and then the, the the secretary put stuck her head in in the office and says, "There's a telephone call for you." 
And he said, D -d -d don't bother me. I, I, you know, I'm in an, in an interview right now. And he says, she said, I think you better take this one. So he took it. His expression changed. He, he was like, he, he, he almost looked like he was ready to explode. What had happened over the phone is the liaison officer had called up and said that, uh, that they wanted, and in two weeks, a, a, a full design development uh, presentation. They hadn't lost the job. Is, is it the, he, that, that because uh, Yamasaki's ego was so big, he just wouldn't want to deal with, uh, with somebody making fun of him. But he was damn sure that this project was going to go through. So I, I, I was sent back, and uh, the, immediately things started to happen. And, and so I got assigned uh, floors 15 to 45 in Tower 2. Hmm. And uh, th th it was then that uh, I started to get very confident about what I was doing, you know, because I, uh, the, the clients were coming in and, and they wanted to know what kind of a layout they'd get. And, and, and I said, there's, there's going to be trouble because uh, th th there, are, there will have to be 18 uh, elevator banks in in three in three sections to get people to the top. So it's going to occupy a lot of the space that's that's in the uh, the one square acre of each floor. And you know it was like 212 by 212. And uh, so I I kept thinking these guys want big space that that they can do office landscaping, because that's when that was very big in New York. And, you know, meaning so they can move people around and, and, and reconfigure the, the petitions and all that kind of stuff when they want to do focus groups and stuff. They couldn't do it. So they, they, they ended up, so I, I had to sell all these clients a, a, a very old-fashioned way of, of doing boiler rooms. So it it stopped being a World Trade Center, so that you couldn't do what what say like Gaudi wanted to do in his hotel. He he had five floors that were completely open, where where you could bring goods and services from the the five uh, uh, continents of of the earth, and uh, they they'd be uh, uh, you know. Stages with uh, with orchestras in there and, and all all kinds of stuff. So I, I I started thinking quick. I said, well, how about if you had uh, say like uh, if there were bridges across from from one of the uh, the towers to the other, could you then rent two floors across? You know, it was all you'd have to do is you you could walk on a on a flat from one part to the other. Because now you'd have to go up and down, up and down in, in, the, in the elevator, and, oh, wow. and, and it, it, it's pretty small in an elevator, so you couldn't, you couldn't bring your work back and forth with any convenience. And, and so uh, I started telling people about that. And, and uh, what, what I had planned, I said, that you could have from, from like the fifth floor up, to uh, to the top, you could have 17 bridges. I said, that's it. That's that's the magic number. Right. And uh, so <coughs> they told they told that uh, you know you know the, the guy that was the, the head of of my department 
brought that up, up to the partners, and they thought it was great. So they, they all called up uh, the liaison officer. He thought it was great. He says, I'll run that by the old man. Who, where, where he was was in Chicago at the time. He, his, his normal office was in Seattle, Washington, you know, because he was born on, on the Pacific Rim. And uh, why he was in Chicago, he was across the street from the building site of, of the Sears Tower, which would eventually be taller than his. Right. And and so he wanted to make sure, keep an eye on that while trying to fast track the the World Trade Center. And uh, so I'm I'm am I'm sitting there, you know, and, you know, working out things where the bridges go, having them built right right into the structural center and the thing welded in. And 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 so they they told Yamasaki about that, and and then he he shot back, whatever guy thought of that, fire him right away. <laughs> Because I want two uh, freestanding towers that, that that are visually vibrating. You know, they're they're very close together. So what uh-huh. he was doing was producing an, an eleven in the sky. Right. And and an eleven which was not the same height. You know, because it, the the two towers were dedicated to to David and Nelson Rockefeller. Right. And 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 uh, one guy, one of the brothers, was taller than the other. So so they made a six foot differential yeah. in uh, in in the towers. Now, uh, <coughs> so um, I, I said I I just can't believe what these guys are doing. That uh, it 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 would have been great uh, to have done that if if anything ever happened to that thing. You could have people, you could empty the thing out. Right. You know, be, because if if one one was on fire, you know, you could bring all the people over to the other one and bring them out. So you'd have four or five hours extra from from any anything of that that kind. But Yamasaki said, well, that that would encourage, you know, people, uh, you, you know, as uh, as human flies going going up big buildings. Right. And they, it, it didn't stop one guy. Walked, he, he went up the thing and, and across on a tightrope from from one to the other, and then down down the other side. <laughs> you know, be, before the cops caught him. Yeah. Do you think that he was uh, focusing on this this twin tower symbolism due to Kabbalism that perhaps maybe no, he was looking? No. This guy, uh, you know, w- would give lessons to a straight arrow. I mean, he he was. He, he, the, the the thing that, the what he was doing Yamasaki were talking yeah about. he he was into pure exaggerated capitalism oh. when when he worked in Saudi Arabia and 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 probably a little bit on the beginnings of Dubai that um, he 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 wanted to do things like airports hospitals hotels big housing developments over there. And, and 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 he was the one that 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 got the uh, um, the the, uh, the Ben Laban Construction Company started, right? Because that 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 was the construction huh. company that was just limping along, you know, not not doing anything. So he trained them in in his style. So he came over and and had them uh, work on on the World Trade Center because I, I I remember one. So One the Bin Ladens day, were working, working on, on that. Wait, wait. You say the Bin Ladens were working on the trade towers? Well, it, it, not 
not Ozama. You know, I mean, right. he was he he was one of the uh, uh, the the trust fund kids right. that, that came out from this, and then and that's why the, his own fifty children have, have each one has about a, a, a million bucks in the bank. You know, that kind of stuff. Right. The uh, but the the, uh, the the construction company that uh, that that Yamasaki used, he, he had to use. You know, obviously had to use some American ones in, in there, but but these, these guys were very close, or, or, they, or they were like right hand men huh. to to Yamasaki, and and they 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 would go around and uh, to different desks, and 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 w one of them came over to me. You know, he, he was wearing a turban and all this kind of stuff, and uh, you know, and he says, where where should we put the demolition devices? Oh, yeah. And I said, "What the hell are you talking about? Why? This is a piece of paper. There's nothing up there yet." He said, "Well, that's where uh, <laughs> we noticed in in Las Vegas that that people have that stuff, and and it's starting to, uh, you know, you know, to spread through New York." And I said, "What's starting to spread?" Yeah. Well, to put in uh, demolition devices before the, uh, you know. Um, uh, b before you take occupancy. No way. And and that means and and the reason for that is is like what is what happens in in uh, Las Vegas. You know, like if if the Bellagio Hotel uh, figures it can make a uh, hundred more bucks by by moving the the ho the hotel three feet to the right or the left, they'll tear it down and do it. Right. You know, and 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 so th this this is the same deal because I, I remember, you know, like in the in the 60s and the 70s, if you went to New York on any regular basis, and and then you were away for a while, and you come back to the same spot, there'd be a new building. Right. And 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 so that it was like uh, uh, Cristo Land. You, you know, they they'd have to they 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 if they're going to demolish it, they'd wrap it. And then, and then they they'd get all of the uh, all the dust confined, you know. So it wasn't like what happened, but but they'd come down like a set of pancakes. Yeah. And, and that, that, that that's the reason why uh, uh, you know World Trade Center Building Number Seven went down. It wasn't hit. Right. It's it's because those things were all connected to each other, so that that, that they could just blow the whole thing up. Wow. Amazing. Well, okay, 911 was was a very dramatic moment in Americans' lives, and really, I feel that we've been pushed to this point where, well, Bark, Buckminster Fuller said it best that we we got the challenge of utopia or oblivion. Do you want to get into utopian ideas a little bit? Yeah, I'd love uh, to. We've got about 25 minutes left. 20 minutes. Oh yeah, I'm taking up too much time here, or something, on one subject. <laughs> it's all good. Okay, okay. The, fascinating the, the, stuff. The, the 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 concept of, of of utopia, of course, goes back to uh, goes back to Plato, but but the person who who wrote about it, you know, a, as an actual fact, was Saint Thomas More, mm -hmm. in, uh, living between f uh, 1478 and 1535, and and who wrote a book in Latin in 1516, uh, with the utopia as as the uh, as the title. Now, what, what what utopia implies is is a new type of space. Uh, the, the, this space in, is is new in terms of manifestation, 
but uh, as old as the history of humankind in terms of a quest. Um, it's it's a uh, it's a form uh, it's an ontic state distinct from both heaven or earth. Uh, it, it, it is it is a situation that states that which has no history connects to that which has only history. In essence, it is that third alternative to the abstract and the concrete modalities of existence. Uh, from an objective standpoint, utopic space appears to have no internal structure, no holyarchies, no hierarchies, no heterarchies. You know, that's what uh, holyarchies going up and down, uh, 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 or spiritually hierarchies going up and down politically, and heterarchies, you know, things off to the side. Said so you must enter utopic space with one instantaneous immersion, the nature of which is yet to be determined. Now, what that, what, what that means is that um, when you're outside of it, it, it doesn't seem like anything. That's that's why people have always considered it as as just a a, a kind of a literary myth. And so once once being inside of it, the story is different. The the entry in, evokes a sense of total freedom, complete danger, unimaginable loneliness, and the possibility of imminent death. But within utopic space, there are no external clues as to the actual intensity of its energy. Uh, the, the Wheatstone Bridge, invented in 1872 by Sir Charles Wheatstone, uh, 1802 to uh, 1875, uh, is, is, is an electrical thing which can contain greater and greater amounts of electrical energy that cannot be discovered from outside of the bridge, and I consider it the best metaphor for utopic energy. Huh. There exists no uh, external clues as to the actual intensity of the energy of utopic space, or even if the word energy is, a, is an appropriate designation at all. The, the power of the Holy Spirit from Christianity is often associated with the secular concept of energy. Theologically, of course, it is not. Within utopic space, there are no natural directions or dimensions. It, it, it is to its inhabitants the environment of transdisciplinary knowledge and the place to experience the authentically new each moment you exist in it. This means like, you know, when you get an insight, uh, there's always uh, uh, times between that where you don't have any insights, but if you had every moment was a new uh, insight that collapsed one upon the other. You get the idea. Uh, utopic space is not the earth limbo of Christianity or hell without punishment. Uh, utopic space is, however, um, more... Uh, what well, is the proper repository of the goal of all future visions. What we will experience within utopic space is not the end of existence, but but the end of the future. So it's it's something that that demands the the existence of of the uh, of, of a working time machine. So that, that that's what I think all the business about uh, 2012 is all, is all about. That uh, a transformation. Well, well, people talk about that as, as as an apocalyptic time, you, you know, the Mayans and all the rest of it. But but I think it's that, that uh, 2013 is is when the first 
uh, time machine will be uh, available, and from then on, you will no longer have a future because you right. can go back and forth. You can have all, all the time you want to to build anything you want. Like uh, you know, I I I predicted things like like structures that are light years in extent that will be necessary for uh, other kinds of activities and, uh, you know, and, and getting across the universe and that kind of stuff. Okay, so that, that, that's sort of what it is, right? So, okay, so that's a, a moment that takes us out of the third dimension and out of time. All of that no longer exists. Now, what about extraterrestrials? Well, what about them? Um, well, you had said that uh, it was uh, obvious to most everyone that today that the universe beyond our immediate locale will be as important to our personal futures as it will be to the collective future of the human species. Oh, yeah. Uh, be so be because we, we, we will need to interact with them. I, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I've had ideas years ago about how to, to start dealing with the solar system. You know where 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 I've hooked the Earth uh, to the up to the Moon, and and, and I remember in uh, in 1980 talking to Buckminster Fuller in in Florence at at a, a World Future Society meeting uh, about that, and uh, it was about four o'clock in the morning in a hotel. He couldn't sleep for one reason or another, and I couldn't. So so I just started talking to him. And, and the, as I said, the thing that I've been thinking of is taking the geodesic sphere and double layering it around the Earth off about 12 miles and then doing the same thing to the moon, but then have a physical link between them, which could be accomplished by uh, Kenneth Snelson's discontinuous compression structure, which works best as like a tower. It's a it's a structure that has no deflection. You know, like when you when, when you build something on the Earth that's subject to gravity, that uh, people use wood or steel, but but still any of those things are going to deflect and bend. Th this thing doesn't because the the compression elements and the tension elements are separated and only connected at at, at one uh, at one point or, or or several points. So it's they're strategically designed so that you could send them out in, into space great distances. And, and, of course, between the Earth and the Moon, there are things called Lagrange points, which, which are, are, are zero gravity positions. And that, that's due to uh, Bode's law, you know, of why the, why the planets line up the way they are and, and why they stay apart, uh, you know, the, the thousands of miles from each other that they do. And uh, so that you could go to those parts and start building towers and then have them connected. And then, and then of course, they'd have to be expansion joints because the, the moon comes closer. And uh, then on the moon, you'd probably have to add rocket power to, to offset the drag of, of what was going on. But what, what would happen is that as one is one shell rotated over the other, you'd have a, a spherical electric waterfall, which means that, that then you, you could send electricity down to the ground anywhere you wanted. And, and you would be able to do things like clean the, the environment. I mean, we, we've sent up in the sky 
at, at the at the highest uh, uh, stratosphere, which is about 12 miles. You know, a lot of vaporized elements, and we need to get that stuff back down onto the Earth, because like about every 10 years, uh, Landsat does uh, photographs of of the Earth, and uh, the, the all the deserts grow bigger. You know, we're, we're having problems with, with trying to keep vegetation going. So that, that, that's why I think there's there's another reason that uh, that we should start connecting vegetation together right. so that we we can restore its its original uh mission which was to keep life going because without vegetation we'd we'd simply die absolutely and and uh but but we have to do it in a way that offsets the industrial revolution i mean the industrial right. revolution is is now a, uh, a few years older than 150. It's probably like 157 years old. And within that short period of time, humans have essentially raped the earth. Exactly. And 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 so when you're when you're coming around to uh, to offset anything like that, you have to do something that is dramatically uh, uh, different, but of, of the same power level. To, to be able to, uh, to 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 make that work, so I I, I thought this is probably uh, the 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 only plan. So I uh, w w I remember as a ten year old kid being taken down to the the Goethe Institute because I, I used to take some courses at uh, at Rudolf Steiner's w Waldorf schools that because I used to live in Belmont, there was one there. And, uh, and, and so I'd go a few times, and they started talking about their influenza, uh, the primordial plant concept that that Goethe developed, yeah. which was before Darwin. And uh, and, and so the, somebody talking about it said, well, of course, the, the, this was only a fanciful notion that he had. But I, I said, well, what would happen if you connected all the vegetation around the earth together, wouldn't you then have the the one plant from which all other plant forms are derived? You know, and, and there was no no answer to that. No. But but that, that that was my immediate reaction, and and I carried that through uh, all my life, and and I, and I really think that's the way to go, because if if people like in science fiction movies talk about terraforming the earth. They don't mean going to Mars and, and, and living in tin cans, you know, connected with tubes, you know, to each other the little ways. That's horrible. Sounds miserable. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like Gerard O'Neill's, you, you know, having rotating uh, tin cans in space and yeah. stuff like that. I mean, that, that's really not uh, a, a way to think about how, how to get to other stars. You've you got to start... You, you, you got to start mega engineering solar systems from from you know from planetary systems from 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 different stars and and start thinking in in bridges that are, that are light years in extent. Excuse me, I, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God, I'm getting a cold. I'm okay. You, you you now uh, have 800 what? paintings somewhere well, around that, right? And, and all of these different concepts, Yeah. Um, not to interrupt you, but we're running low on time. Uh, I was curious about the CAT scan, the implant, and what you thought oh, about okay. how you, you had well, said that. Well, one time, this is in like 1992, 
um, my teeth started falling out. And so people said, well, you know, don't get regular false teeth because you, they, they now have a new thing. You know, uh, they call them implants. You know, they, they, they just drill into your, uh, your jaw and, and then you can stick in a tooth, tooth and it looks just like a real tooth and works right. that way. So I, I, I went to the Beth Israel Dental Clinic and then, and then had uh, some uh, oral surgeon look me over, and he says, well, you you get a pretty good candidate. You've got a lot of mandible jaw there, and your bones are really good. So, but, but I'm going to have to, uh, I'm not going to rely on those little tiny uh, x-rays they normally give people. And so you, you're going to have to have a CAT scan of your head. And uh, I, I didn't know what, what that was, and, and I getting set up for that. I thought I was going through the hair dryer from hell. Yeah, right. You know, <laughs> when you, you put through. And uh, so the, I was in there about an hour and a half, and, and I kept asking the guy, well, when, when is this over? And he says, well, we, we've got some problems. And I said, like, what? Have uh, you ever had uh, your neck broken? And I said, no. I said, at that time, I'd, I'd only had a collarbone broken when I was seven. And he said, well, yeah, maybe it's not your neck. He said, but have you ever been shot? And I said, what, what are you, why are you asking me these questions? Because there's something in, in your brain. And, and I said, what's in there? And, and, and so he checked. He kept making more and more pictures of, of you know, my brain on my head from different directions, and then said, "There's something in your in your um, between your your two uh, uh, your, in the back of your occipital lobes, you know, back where there, there's uh, where you see things, you know, come from there." That uh, that I said, well, "What's there?" He said, "It's, it's something." about uh, three-eighths of an inch long, uh, a sixteenth of an inch in diameter, and rounded at both ends. And, and I said, well, what's its orientation? He says, well, if you were standing up, it, it, would, it would be vertically oriented uh, in, 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 lining, in line with your spine. And I said, that doesn't sound like any bullet that I've ever heard of. Yeah. And, uh, and, and he started to agree with me, and, and he said, I, I, I can take you directly to an operatory right now. I'll pull the thing out. Uh, and I said, wait a minute. You're, you're going to take one of those round saws and then take a plug out of my skull and start fiddling with my brain? I don't think so. <laughs> no. And, and so he then said, well, I, I'm going to take these pictures and bring them to a chapter of MUFON, which is in Medford, Massachusetts. And, and, and I said, are, are you, do you deal with flying saucers and stuff? And he says, yeah, I happen to be that way. Yeah. And uh, so the, the person who, and they, and they, had, they had me, uh, they, they, they brought me along after an initial meeting with a physicist for, from Tufts University who, who was in the group also. And, and he said that what he figured that I had in there, because I made no uh, you know, I, I, I never worried about it. It never gave me any pain or anything like this. That, that this was a, a, a bio-nanotechnological device. Because any, any uh, 
civilization just even only a thousand years older than we are would have commercialized nanotechnology and and and, and then fused it with uh, with biology. Do you think you were abducted? I I, I don't. I have no recollection of that or anything. All right. uh, I've I've never had any you know dreams waking up and uh, you know it's not this, this is not like Whitley Schreiber you know in in communion and that right. kind of stuff. No, I I just had no thought about it at all. Uh -huh. But but what, what this guy was telling me kind of made some sense because uh, as a as a as a way of of dealing with with the civilizations light years away from you, it, it wouldn't be profitable to go there. What would be better is, is to buckshot a parsec of space with these devices that would then hit sentient beings and, and, not, and not hurt them, but enter things like pores and then go into the bloodstream and and go to things like uh, the, the ventricles in the brain, and and I, I I noticed in studying this stuff myself later that that there is a ventricle in the brain that's right where they were talking about that that where something could fit. So it would be like this this ultra small thing would uh, you know just landed on me and, and and didn't hurt any tissue, but made the journey. To where it should be, and set up shop, and then and then took all the. I mean, all, all the time we're coming apart with atoms all the time. So the, these things could be useful to uh, to a nanobot, you know, in in building the, this this whole thing. So it, it it would not be a a thing like bird banding. Okay, for for a speck of light that that's that's billions of light years away. Who the hell cares where, where you go? You you know you're trapped on on a on a uh, on a planet. So what they'd really want to know is whether we are ahead of them technologically, be are they behind them? Whether we'd be good to eat, you know, would it be a good place to 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 settle, you know, all kinds of stuff that that you've seen on Outer Limits. You think they're and, sitting back there watching some Laffily TV? Yeah, something like that. But but it 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 really started to to make sense to me because all, all the people that have had trouble, you know, you know, all the things that John Mack talked about, is is that they they were discovered in odd places in a person's body, like behind the knee, you know, stuck in the in the, in in the, up their nose and this, you know, things where that it, it would seem to me that what happened is. That they entered the body and then never made it to the to the proper site and then right. set up shop and the, and then caused the creature pain. But the, what the hell do they care? You know, because do you think that the, these uh, conceptual ideas we've got we've got just two minutes left? Do you think yeah. that these conceptual ideas? I mean, you've designed machines that involve thousand foot uh, jellyfish and such. Yeah. Uh, right. Okay. Well, about that, it's, is it because I, I, I kind of agree with what you're saying now, because w w when I was born, I, I have Asperger's syndrome, which was occurred later. But, but when I was four years old, my mother took me to, to, to Harvard again <laughs> the first time, and, and they said my IQ was 79. And, and then later on, 
with, with, with the help of uh, 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 somebody that taught at, at the Waldorf School, my IQ went up to 189. Now, I, I, don't, I don't think that variation in an IQ is possible. Right. So what, what, what I believe now is, is what you're saying, is that, that I was given a set of ideas. Yeah. And, and for testing, it's it's like what they wanted to do is test the world view of of wh wherever they wherever they were sending the the, uh, the these nanobots or whatever you want to call them. Probably probably that's obsolete now. Well, I'll tell you what, <laughs> this Earth is still considering you uh, conceptually deviant. Uh, <laughs> they're uh, not quite ready for the ideas that you have. I think that you're about 200 years in the future, but hopefully not, because I'm hoping your ideas come to fruition. I'm ready to grow my house and bring about utopic space. Yeah, because I, I think you like it. <laughs> I think I would like it, too. <laughs> tuning in and joining us here on the Free Zone. I uh, have a wonderful show for you tonight. We're going to be talking with Dr. David Lewis Anderson of the Anderson Institute, all on time travel and time control technologies. I'm looking forward to that. But before we get there, I thought I should hit you up with some of the latest news that's popped up in uh, Vatican curiosities and Disney sorceries and just uh, all kinds of madness that's going on around us. Uh, most curious story to date right now, of course, is the Lucifer in instrument that is helping astronomers see through the darkness. Yes, a Lucifer telescope has been placed in Arizona by the Vatican. Now, I'll tell you, they had to work very hard to make this telescope's name Lucifer. <laughs> Get this, the, the Lucifer telescope is the large binocular telescope near-infrared utility with camera and integral field unit for extragalactic research. You have to take two breaths in that one. <laughs> I mean, they had to work at that. This is a chilled instrument attached to a telescope in Arizona, and, and yeah, it's named for the devil. Uh, but the Vatican says this is not their fault, but the fault of the Germans that put this together for them. And the German folks that had a response to uh, the title and, and people asking why the Vatican would have a Lucifer telescope, uh, said that they wouldn't have the hesitation that Americans would have since it's a very secular country. But he could be completely off. He's not sure. <laughs> they didn't get to talk to the actual Germans who crafted it. 
Why they named it the Lucifer is really a, a curious thing. Like I say, the large binocular telescope near-infrared utility with camera and integral field unit for extragalactic research. You had to work at that to make the Vatican telescope mean Lucifer. Insane. Disney's coming out with a new product, and I just, I, you know, normally I won't talk about these sort of things, but this one caught my eye. It's called the Kane Chronicles. So we're going back to uh, some of the serpent connections and, and Kane and the Freemason connections. And uh, this is all about the ancient Egyptian gods coming back to life. Imagine that. And they say Set, the Egyptian god of the dead, the evil one, uh, has his sights on the Canes. And, of course, it includes their mother's death, as all Disney films will do. Well, this is a book at this time coming out very shortly. Uh, I'll give you my book review as soon as I have it. But the brilliant Egyptologist Dr. Julius Kane is out to try and stop the world as it unleashes the Egyptian god Set onto the world. So should be a very interesting thing. Disney never ceases to amaze me. We are working very hard on our Weird Stuff magazine, and uh, Set and these Egyptian gods play a heavy role in the magazine, so I thought it really curious uh, with Walt Disney's timing. And I often wonder if they are having a look at my work. Uh, speaking of which, Fox News reported that the HTV2 was a failure. Now, as you might remember, last Friday there were two launches, one from Florida, one from California. Uh, the one from Florida was launching the X-37B space war vehicle, the robotic mini space shuttle that no one can really tell you what it's going to do. But it is now orbiting our Earth and uh, will be up there for up to about nine months and can drop into any war field anywhere in the world within minutes. But not so lucky with the HTV-2 or the hypersonic technology vehicle which um, had to splash down right about the time that the X-37B was launching. Well, Fox News says conspiracy theorists are having a field day with this one. Uh, so far, I'm the only one I know of covering this, this topic. Dr. Anderson founded the TTRC, or an Advanced Time Technology Research Laboratory, where he gave and brought together a comprehensive overview on time travel. And uh, his documentary, you can see it, it's called Time Travel Journeys into Time. Uh, he is now president of the Anderson Institute, the Anderson LLC, holds many patents on time reactor designs. These are used for energy production and time control technologies. And Dr. Anderson, I am very excited to talk with you. Hello, Freeman. It is such a pleasure to be here on the uh, Freeman Perspective and Freeman TV. Thank you so much. You are very welcome. Well, I wanted to just get right to the beginning here and understand, well, first, you started off in, in the military at a young age working for advanced research and development. Is that DARPA? Uh, not initially DARPA, no. Initially it was Air Force Systems Command. Okay. And in this uh, area of research, I mean, at Edwards Air Force Base now, many of us uh, connect this with UFOs, with high technology, advanced uh, flight patterns. Were you involved in any of these uh, earlier black operations, or can you tell me? Well, I, I can't talk a lot about uh, my activities at, uh, in Air Force Systems Command at Edwards Air Force Base, uh, and that, that shouldn't be a surprise to many of your listeners. 
Um, but actually, when I did initially begin my work with the Air Force, it was not in the field of space-time physics or uh, time control technologies. It actually uh, is something that evolved within my first two or three years working for the United States Air Force. All right. Well, what got you interested in the time travel and time control technologies? And more importantly, what made you think it was possible? Oh, I love that question, Freeman. It's fantastic. Uh, I think the question I'd ask your listeners is why it surprises me that anybody think it would not be possible. Uh, as a matter of fact, to be very specific about that, in 1949, Kurt Gödel, a German mathematician, took Einstein's uh, equations and demonstrated mathematically that not only time travel to the future was possible, but that time could actually loop back on itself into the past. In uh, 1974, a physicist by the name of Frank Tipler actually wrote a paper that received a lot of attention on how to build a time machine, and it clearly showed how time travel was completely possible within the laws of our math and physics, which is absolutely true today and has never been disproven. Uh, what's also amazing to me is that um, uh, many, many listeners probably are not aware that not only is it possible, but there are now five uh, government and private agencies around the world active every day in time control technology. So initially my focus wasn't there, but I was working on high-speed uh, space-based na navigation systems for the Air Force, and I observed something quite unusual in some experiments we were doing, which led to a, a mathematical model describing uh, something in physics called inertial frame dragging, where a rotating body like the Earth in space actually twists space-time around it. And I came up with a mathematical model uh, that actually had never existed before describing the effects of inertial frame dragging, which later became time warp field theory. And uh, at the time, I hoped to pursue that work in the Air Force, but at the time they weren't interested, so I, I took it outside and founded what was called the Time Technology Research Center. Amazing. Well, you said that it would be, uh, that it was fairly simple. I, I myself, uh, I was a, an algebra tutor. I love algebra. It's something I do for fun. Do you think I would be able to have the, the aptitude to, to be able to work out time travel? Do you know what's absolutely amazing is uh, it's interesting that you mention that because there's an exercise. I speak at universities all around the world, and when I'm working with young college physics students, one of the first things that we teach them is that if you can overcome the limitation of your the way your mind works through your biological in cultural evolution and the way your senses are limited, you can actually boil down um, the complex world of space-time physics to basic algebra. And it is very possible. It's a very difficult thing to do um, because we don't see the universe and the world around us the way it is. We see it the way we are. And some of our thoughts have gone to the idea that the universe is mental, that consciousness is actually manufacturing reality. Quantum physics shows us that, you know, particles not there until we look at it. Uh, is this a connection with time travel? Would this affect time travel? Is it in our minds? I, I, I think uh, two parts of that. Absolutely, yes. The, the world truly is what we did label reality. Most scientists today would agree um, it's, it's a fabrication of our, uh, of our minds. Uh, we do know, um, and it's interesting that it's taken this long, over millennia, for the scientific community to show so many people that in the super colliders and particle accelerators, we can see matter transform into energy, energy back into matter. Matter we see through quantum mechanics and, and physics that the world truly is a dynamic web of information and energy. And um, 
And clearly, that's something that many sacred religions have, hold, had, have held near and dear for, for millennia. And it's kind of interesting to see the scientific world converging with what many people would call ancient wisdom. But the short answer is yes. Uh, uh, also, there is clearly very possible to move forward and backwards in time, whether it be information or matter or living organisms. Well, I have to jump on that one. Have we sent things back in time? <laughs> uh, you know, the short answer is absolutely yes. I could stop there, but that probably would be, um, be unacceptable for your listeners. Um, actually, there are uh, five countries today. Um, Japan is quite actively uh, doing work, uh, uh, sending information forward and backwards in time. Uh, Russia has been involved in this since the 1960s. We know that. Um, uh, because we've seen actually recently the U.S. government was funding a project through Princeton University and Dr. Lejun Wang uh, that actually where he demonstrated the ability to send information faster than light, essentially backwards in time. This is work Russia was doing back in the 1960s, and Dr. Wang built um, incredibly on top of that and, and spread the word even further. But Russia is an organization. The United States, we have uh, S4, we have the Anderson Institute uh, doing work, and we also have the University of Connecticut and, and Dr. Mallet, who's campaigning very aggressively to get into the game. Uh, we're working with South Korea, uh, governments and agencies there, and uh, India, well, India is just leaving the rest of the world in the dust when it comes to time-controlled technology work. Well, fantastic. Uh we're coming up on the break right now. I'd love to pick it up uh, when we get to the other side on the idea of the religion aspect and how some of these nations are all right with time travel or even human cloning, as Dr. Zabos found out in the Middle East, uh, that you know, our certain religious belief systems will open these possibilities. This is going to be. We're going to explore the world of time travel and time control technologies with Dr. David Lewis Anderson of the Anderson Institute. Very good time talking with you, David. Oh, thank you so much for being So I guess the most obvious question is, does time really exist? Well, you know, it's, um, for me, it's, it's, I would tell to your listeners, this is probably perhaps one of the most exciting, undiscovered frontiers that we're exploring. And the question you're asking, Freeman, is a question that has been asked for millennia throughout the history of human societies on this planet. Uh, we've seen philosophers uh, like Plato describe time as the moving image of eternity. We've seen Aristotle call it the number of measure of motion. Uh, we've seen it described as the productive life of the soul. But I, I think the definition that I think uh, has stood the test of time uh, for hundreds and hundreds of years has been St. Augustine, where he described time as an illusionary product of our mind. And it's so true. And St. Augustine actually captured that in something, um, a mental exercise. And it's very simple. It's a quote, he said. He says, what then is time? If no one asks me, I know. But if I wish to explain it to one that asketh, I know not. And the example I would give to your listeners, and maybe even a challenge, is the next time you're with friends or family or walking down the street and you see somebody you know, do a test. Ask them if they know what time is. They're going to nod their head and say yes. And then follow it up immediately and say, please explain it to me. And they will be at a loss for words. Um, 
And St. Augustine really captured the essence of time. We truly see that uh, time does vary. It, it, it's a function of our biological evolution. There are even cultures on this planet that have no sense of the nature of time. For example, if we look closely at the language of the Navajo and Hopi, Hopi Indian tribes here in North and South America, they don't have verb tenses. Uh, for past, present, and future in their stories and in their language. They can't and never refer to the temporal quality of something happening, only the quality of an event. We see tribes like the Paraha tribe of Brazil, who has no concept of time, uh, and other cultures spread out around the world. So why we, in some cultures, view time so linearly, uh, what we really true truly see in the laboratories and through evidence around the world is that time truly doesn't exist. It really is an illusionary product of our mind uh, created by our minds and bodies' perceptions. Well, that begs the question of the time control and time travel technology. Is this a device? Is this uh, a mental perception? Or how does that work? Well, it, it, it's interesting if you if you ask the question that way, um, I would say uh, there, there's two ways to look at it. Uh, first off, if you look in our culture, we look at time so incredibly linearly. Um, and uh, unfortunately, it's not. If, if you look at other cultures like in Asia, if you, if you talk to a Buddhist monk and you ask him, why does time move forward and pull and drag us along? What is its unseen force? He will be completely lost. Uh, in his mind, in his culture, in his beliefs, he sees all time existing at once. And so to answer your question specifically, um, we see multiple ways to move through time. And that, that's what's really fascinating about this subject. There is no one answer. There are some people, Freeman, who like to say this answer is right and this answer is wrong about time. That no, the spiritual beliefs about time are right. The beliefs of religion are correct. No, this view in science or that view in science. The truth is... The spiritual views of science are the beliefs that um, people have the ability within the human mind to transcend time and space, the ability to use um, very high speeds and acceleration to transcend time, or fields of closed time-like curves and the technologies that generate these. These are all one part of one and the same and inseparable. Interesting. It's definitely a curious subject, one that's been at my heart for a long time. Uh, now, we have, you had mentioned Large Hadron Colliders and the use of particle physics. Uh, they, they have Shiva standing outside of the CERN Institute. And I'm wondering about India. You had said that they were uh, way up on their time travel and that this was one of the main countries performing these type of experiments. Why India? Well, it's it's a great question that people have been asking me recently because, uh, first off, the extents of their operation, they are not only um, working on time control technologies for in transport of information forward and backwards in time, they're doing the same thing for matter and living organisms. But what's exciting about India is the investment that they've made. They're not only experimenting with the technologies, they've already developed their mission plans and their operational infrastructure and the commercialization plans for some of the technologies coming out of their research. Uh, I've been to some of their facilities just outside of Mumbai and also in the state of uh, Maharashtra. And it's absolutely amazing what they're doing. Why India, Freeman? Um, I have a personal view on that. First off, when you look at the views of the world, uh, and which I think is true, uh, and I clearly see as true in the laboratory, that the world is a dynamic web of energy and we're all interconnected, these are views 
that the the basic religions of that area of the world have held sacred for thousands of years. So in their cultural evolution, um, they have a completely different view of time than us. Secondly, the second point, and I'll stop there, is the leadership of India. Uh, different than many countries, the presidents of India are elected based upon their uh, promiscuity in the fields of science. So you'll see the presence of India being some of the most revered and respected scientists of their nation, not necessarily politicians. So there's a natural leaning towards um, uh, that area as well. I like that. I like that. Well, so this begs another question. It's just one question after another, right, with time travel. If, if we're capable of this now, then people in the future obviously would be capable of it. Are we aware of time travelers coming to our time? I, I think uh, I think many people believe that. In in our experiments, uh, I would not say that we've made contact in that manner. Uh, many people do believe, and um, it's not my area of expertise. I'm a scientist. I'm a physicist. Uh, uh, but. One thing uh, people ask me many times, well, are UFOs and all these sightings of unidentified flying objects and other phenomenon, possibly time travelers from the future? I can't answer that question. What I can answer is when you study the observations of what a observer sees in terms of light phenomenon and sound and the experience to the human census, and you work backwards and said, okay, if we use the technologies available for time uh, control, and we used it to send a ship through time, what would be the observable physical effect in our world? And it lines up almost 98% with the reported phenomenon and uh, what's perceived in observations of UFOs. So uh, do I believe that? I'm not qualified to answer that question, but uh, uh, that would that'd be how I'd respond, Freeman. Right. Well, that's, that's uh, pretty interesting there. Uh, would, a lot of people have thought that thought. Well, I think uh, we're, we're coming back on another break here, and uh, so I wanted to get into you, uh, some of the perils of, of time travel, or perhaps before we begin with that, let's, let's have you describe what the device is, how this works, what it looks like, and uh, the amazement that people seem to have when viewing it. This song is apropos, I must say. Uh, John Lennon is making me wonder, could I be younger with time travel technology? <laughs> I'm talking with Dr. David Lewis Anderson of the Anderson Institute. And Dr. Anderson, I would like for you to tell us a little bit about the Anderson Institute. What do you do? How is it done? And uh, where are you at? Well, we're located in uh, the northwest corner of New Mexico. Uh, we are a private research laboratory uh, that focuses on essentially on time control technology resource research. Uh, also, we're, as many people may know, uh, your listeners might know, is that we're very active right now in campaigning uh, uh, within our organization and also with our partners and other scientists around the world to bring uh, time control technology work that's being done right now into the public eye. Uh, for a lot reasons because of, of what you mentioned before the break of the uh, while there are temptations to use the technology for good there are incredible opportunities for um, uh, things to go terribly wrong with the application of the technology if not used prudently absolutely 
And we'll definitely get to that. What is this time machine device anyway? What is Oh, you're asking about uh, uh, our, our time, uh, our, our system that we use. We actually uh, use uh, what's called a time warp field generator. And uh, this is, uh, we developed a time warp field generator in the 1980s, refined it in the 1990s, and uh, we reached our third generation in 2002, which we're actually still working with today. And essentially what a time warp field generator is, it allows us to create a, in a laboratory environment, a spherical field inside of which we can actually accelerate, slow down, or even reverse time rates within the field. Uh, it allows us to do, uh, in a controlled environment, to do experiments, um, with uh, matter, with information, with living organisms. We spent a lot of time in our first two generations uh, trying to understand what we were observing. There were a lot of phenomenon uh, that we didn't quite understand. In our third generation, we finally realized uh, how to better control some of the more uh, difficult aspects of a time warp field in, in an area we call the boundary layer of the field, which gets quite complex. But essentially, that's it. <clears throat> if you're if you're a viewer watching the field, it's quite a remarkable experience. Uh, it's quite a uh, loud, spectacular opening of the field because we use a chemical reagent, um, high-powered lasers, rotating electromagnetic fields, and when the field opens, it's quite spectacular. Then it stabilizes, and that's when we can begin doing our experiments. Field size itself is about today uh, just under two meters in diameter. Uh oh. That's that's uh, not big enough for a human then, uh, or two meters. I'm sorry. Yeah, let me yeah, get two my meters, two meters. Yeah. There. Sorry, <laughs> I went metric uh, on you, Freeman. Yes, you did. <laughs> uh, yes. Well, I'm thinking about different time travel. I have movies and scenarios. H.D. Wells, The Time Machine. Uh, well, first of all, if we are, are you aware of shows like uh, uh, Stargate or Sliders? Uh, slightly, yes, I am. I'm more aware of some of the old literature uh, in, in uh, speculation about uh, uh, time travel, but uh, some of the shows, yes, I'm familiar with. I was curious of the time, fa the time wave field, if it would look more like the sliders type scenario or the uh, Stargate where they're walking through a water field. Uh, you know, actually, sorry, yeah, go ahead. You know, Oh, actually, it's, it's quite interesting. Um, uh, it, it does not look like a, uh, a sliders phenomenon. Uh, we actually did a lecture uh, in uh, New York two weekends ago, and for the first time publicly, we showed a video of a time warp field, and, and actually uh, a time warp field generator in an experiment. And actually, there is a watery effect. It's not like in Stargate, um, and it varies in color, intensity, and uh, opaqueness, uh, depending on what type of experiment you're doing in the conditions of the field. Field. Uh, but I would say maybe it has a little bit of a watery effect, but it's actually an illusion. It's, it, it, there's nothing you can sense there. It's more uh, um, uh, the boundary layer affecting the visible light spectrum that's passing through it. So now in H.G. Wells' time machine, the uh, character throws a person out of the field, and he then degenerates and dies. Uh, what, did you have effects like this? Did uh, If you put your hand outside of the field from inside, would it? What would happen? Is there death? 
<laughs> you know, it's interesting. Uh, the short answer is no, but we did have something similar, and it had nothing to do with, uh, with the phenomenon of time. Uh, the, when you have uh, an area like the spherical field and time is moving at a very fast rate or slow rate inside, and then you have a rate of time that's different outside, you get a very interesting effect in the boundary layer where frequencies are Doppler upward or downward, depending on what you're doing. And actually, in our early generators, uh, our greatest problem was that some of the high energy in the field would be actually Dopplered upward to harmful radiation. So living organisms like plants we were doing experiment with would actually deteriorate and die. But that was due more to a, a very simple physical explanation of radiation being created by Dopplering higher uh, frequencies to a higher level. Okay, so yeah, no, no major accidents at the Institute so far? No, we, we, uh, there, there are some planet seedlings that uh, we mourn every day and that <laughs> yes. we've gone through quite a bit of them. Uh, and they are living organisms that share our, our universe, so uh, we do feel them. But uh, no, no, no major catastrophes, even though we are quite concerned. Uh, the, the range of capabilities of this technology have grown uh, quite high, not just at the Anderson Institute, but at other organizations. And people are getting much more brave with their experiments perhaps without understanding the consequences, which is one of the great, great risks. Right, and why we have you out here so that the world will know that this is real and this is going on and they need to catch up with the science. Uh, you Absolutely. speak of high-performance time reactors or systems for energy production. Would this then give us uh, is anti-gravity? I'm, I'm thinking of uh, one of those balls that you know, uh, move back and forth, and then you could slow or speed that up. Now, that would seemingly affect gravity in, a, in our way. So can we pull out energy technologies and, and perhaps even anti-gravity technologies from this? Well, um, the, the first thing, just for your listeners' benefit, when we first built a time warp field generator, once we started a field, it took quite a bit of power to initiate a field. But after it was initiated, we noticed there was more power being generated um, than we were actually putting into it, which violates the laws of physics. For 13 to 14 years of time warp field experiments, we didn't understand what we were seeing. We finally did. And actually, what a time warp field generator was doing was tapping into the curve, the energy, the potential energy in curved space time around the Earth caused by inertial frame dragging. Um, and the second half of your question, Freeman, was? Uh, okay, so we have energy projection, uh, the energy projection and the possible use of anti-gravity. Oh, anti-gravity, yes. Anti-gravity. Well, uh, the, the first answer is no. While there are some effects on gravity, um, the modern-day view of physics, and even Einstein agreed this in his later years, is gravity doesn't exist. And I would encourage your listeners to chase this. It's kind of like the question of time. You know, we all in high school, we love the formulas for gravity. We pat ourselves on the back because we know that uh, if we drop a pebble down the well, we use 16 times the acceleration times time squared. We know the distance. We understand what gravity is. No, we don't. Um, it, 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 gravity is a label we put on something that we don't understand. Do we really think there's a big hand behind the moon that's pressing it towards the earth as it rotates around? Uh, the answer is no. And physicists today, uh, most of the peers I work with clearly see that uh, gravity 
does not exist. It simply curves space-time in action. And this is something Einstein said. Einstein in his later years even agreed that his theory of general relativity based on gravity was completely useless. It was just a, a special case of the special theory of relativity. So I, I like to use that as an example to chime in and remind people, uh, what is gravity? Why do objects, um, if I'm holding a ball in my hand, why when I let it go does it fall to the earth? Because of 16 at squared or the formulas for gravity? No. Why does it truly happen? Gravity is a label we put on things that we don't understand. I'd even challenge your listeners one step further. The question is not, why when I remove my hand does the ball fall to the earth? The question is, why do I need to hold my hand there to keep the ball from falling, following its natural course that it wants to follow? Two very different perspectives. Now, Michael Jackson, <laughs> beloved Michael Jackson, he, he was planning for his death. He talked to people, roboticists, about developing a robot to transmit his soul into that robot. He thought much about his death. He talked about it with Lady Diana and Princess Diana. He talked about it with his uh, Lisa Marie Presley. He thought about his death a lot, and he thought about it so much. But when he was purchasing King Tut's sarcophagus, he was questioned as to whether he was going to be buried in that sarcophagus. And Michael Jackson said, no, I'm going to live forever. Well, Michael sets up his 50-show tour at the O2 Arena and then mysteriously dies. Or did he? Because a month after his death, suddenly in the Chicago Museum, a bust of Michael Jackson from ancient Egypt appears. A bust that no one had noticed any time before his death. But a month after his death, now there's this bust sitting in the Chicago Museum. And to us, it would seem that it had been there always. But now we're talking about time travel. What if Michael wrote in a new timeline? Is this possible, Dr. Anderson? Well, I, I don't know the specifics of that exact scenario, but uh, I will say we, we do an experiment. We do a number of experiments to, uh, uh, to address this. It, it's a big question. When time control technology is exercised, will we know it? Will we know the effects? When we go back and we change an event and re-engineer historical timeline, will the people in the future recognize that the timeline has been changed. And what we see in the laboratory is clearly not. With one exception, we do believe, without a lot of experimental evidence, that there are some people, a small percentage of the population, that are sensitive and able to um, uh, sense modifications that have occurred in a timeline. But let me tell you something very similar. This is the first time I've heard about the bust on your show here of, uh, of, uh, in Chicago. We do an experiment called Brothers and Sisters um, where we use uh, uh, families of seedlings and generations, and we will um, move seedlings backwards in time, and we will uh, we'll move backwards in time and we'll destroy something, uh, destroy a generation and come back. And what's interesting is, is that the scientists in the laboratory um, – while the object or the target of the experiment returns with the DNA profiles of the generations that were taken, that were uh, established and exterminated, when they return to the present timeline, uh, we do not, we actually see a change in what has occurred in the laboratory. We have no knowledge um, that anything was modified, but clearly the information we sent back in time with the DNA profiles of these families of seedlings and what returns then is completely different 
than what we started the experiment with, and we have no conscious view of that. And it's one of the fallacies that I, I blame on the movies about this common belief about parallel universes. That, uh, it's simply not true what we're seeing in the laboratory, that uh, parallel timelines spin off. Hmm. Well, that was going to be my next question, so I'm glad that you hit that. Uh, well, you so know, if, I, if, if I could comment on parallel sure. universes yes, please. Uh, a little bit. You know, a lot of people... Um, I talk about, uh, you know, one of the most popular paradoxes is the grandfather paradox. If I go back in time and kill my grandfather, uh, I would no longer exist, so therefore I couldn't have gone back in time. So my grandfather would be born, but now I am born too, so I can go back in time. Uh, these paradoxes, just like every paradox we see in physics, is simply places where our rational minds bump into our own minds, bodies, and senses, uh, uh, perceptions, and limitations. Uh, in the case of the grandfather paradox, if a person were to travel back in time and kill their grandfather, as we see in our brother and sister's experiment uh, with uh, plant living organisms, um, that person would kill their grandfather. They would continue to exist, but by doing that event, they've basically reshaped, reshaped the construct of reality, meaning that, for example, in the case of the, uh, uh, the sets of family of seedlings uh, that we use in our experiments, by going back and destroying a previous generation, we actually change the construct of, rea of reality. The certain seedlings no longer come into existence. Some of the brothers and sisters just simply are no longer there. New ones appear. In some cases, things go terribly in another direction. Hmm. So what about re-engineering historical timelines? Oh, this is, a, this is a very sensitive point for us in, uh, I would say, the scientific community. At least the scientists I know that are living every day in the middle of the research uh, are, are, are split. Um, there, there seem to be, you know, Freeman, and many people see it, so many temptations to... Well, we seem to have lost David technology. Oh, we lost you there for a second. Oh, we could make trips to... Can you hear me now? Yes. Okay. We could take trips to the future... Um, and could cure diseases or bring back medical technology to save lives. Um, with the technology already available, there would be no more need for research to actually develop it. Uh, both this process, though, and the survivors would change the future that the technology had come from. And if we did say the future technology were to be banned to avoid this, then the patients that, say, perhaps had enough money would be tempted to travel to a time where they could receive better treatment. Uh, we could even see petitions drawn up to restore extinct species or intervene in tragedies to uh, save lives. But why we see so many benefits, Freeman, um, simply put, um, we're experimenting with technologies, not at the Anderson Institute, but all around the world now, several organizations are, that the consequences are not understood. There's really an unpredictable complex web of interdependencies when you exercise a technology like time control technology. The very process can have ripple effects that redefine individual lives and consciousness. We could transmit viruses through times. We could drive the extinction of the human race. Uh, we could see even global catastrophes inadvertently created. And even with many of the interests of several governments, we could see the world's first great time war. So there are many risks that have to be considered and weighed as we look at this. Well, can you tell me more about the time war? What would that mean? Well, um, it shouldn't be a surprise to anybody. Um, a, a time war. Many governments 
you know, what is the purpose of a nation? Uh, the, the fundamental goal of a nation is first to survive and then to prosper. And one of the fundamental tenets of strategy, whether it be military strategy, political strategy, business strategy, is you keep your technology secret. Um, and, and most of the governments that are experimenting and have programs active now look at the use of the technology to establish um, better opportunities to survive and prosper, whether that means weaponization of the technology or re-engineering of timelines for political and economic gains. Uh, there are many implications. Yes, uh, very frightening and, and also positive. I suppose we, you know, if, if the good people were in charge of the technology, but it's hard to know who's going to end up with what and how that's all going to go. Uh, well, that's, that, that's a great question, you know. Um, uh, you know who should who should be working with this technology um, with the ability now to send information or matter or living organisms forward and backwards in time? What do we do with the knowledge? How do we handle it? Who should have access to it? And given its implications into actually redefining a sentient and conscious life um, or having catastrophic ripple effects, there are some very serious questions that, that need to be answered. Very serious. I'm very glad that you're coming out and telling the world uh, you felt that this was necessary at this point. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, but I would explain to your listeners that it's challenging. And um, when you look at a Freeman, and I'd encourage your listeners to think about it, when you look at a scientific breakthrough like time control technologies, it offers commercial prospects and tremendous interest from both the private sector and uh, private enterprise. And when you also look at the financial aspirations and power of these large businesses, as well as the political and economical aspirations and power of governments, you can't underestimate their, their influence. Uh, it's extremely... Um, a Well, we've covered parallel universes, paradoxes, and re-engineering historical timelines and a potential for the first great time war. As disturbing as all of these things are, uh, what other perils are there with time travel or time control technologies? Well, Freeman, I, um, my first comment would be is that uh, uh, I also like to focus on the good. And I would tell your listeners that in, in, in the, among the many uh, scientists I work with, while I see many agencies and uh, organizations politically and profit motivated around the technology, I also see many people um, who... Uh, really truly care about the benefits of the technology and I always remind people uh, breaking things into uh, good and evil are uh, sometimes dangerous because we use those to justify to stop thinking sometimes justify to do uh, do bad things so we're kind of all part of the same situation so I, I think there, there's also a lot of positives but as you say uh, you're absolutely right. The, the risks here are severe. Um, well, we watch as CERN. I'm sorry, Dan. I, I, I'm just yeah. thinking that we watch as CERN just punches holes and opens potential black holes, strangelets. They don't know. No one knows what's going to happen when they, they do these experiments for the first time. Or HARP uh, launching itself and shutting down power all over the nation. Uh, turning something like this on, you, you just don't know what might happen. Well, you know, that's that's where uh, that's the fundamental point of, of the risk here. Um, 
any time a society has unprecedented acquisition of knowledge and power, um, along with that higher knowledge and power, the greater must be our sense of moral responsibility. When you look at things like super colliders and nuclear energy, we've danced on the edge of the razor blade, Freeman, and we've managed to survive as a human society. Um, but if we really look at the human ethics around this, we really must accept that the greater our knowledge and power, we have to have a greater capacity for moral reasoning. And until recently, with these other technologies, with HARP, with nuclear energy, which is, is pretty much, very much on the edge of a razor blade, uh, and these other technologies, we could say that as a society we've been pretty effective, that our capacity for moral reasoning has kept pace with our our, our, our development of our human knowledge and our own mental capacity. But that's not what we're seeing now. We're talking about with time control technology, the actual process of making history and experimental science, of reaching forward and backwards in time, moving things in that direction, retrieving things, um, and ripple effects that are beyond the human capacity to predict, yet we're willing to do it. it, it it's incredibly foolish, probably just by about any perspective you would uh, look at it from. Now, would you be able to tell if someone was using time travel technologies? Uh, actually, yes, we can. And it's, it's actually a very fundamental part of what we do, Freeman. We, we don't talk about the problem without a solution. We have a four-step plan at the Anderson Institute, and we're working with our colleagues around the world. One, full technology and disclosure and transparency. Number two, the launch of a global education initiative. Number three, the hard part, the establishment of a global moral compass to guide the any further development and any further use of the technology. And number three is monitoring. And we actually have a technology uh, we call a temporal tremor detector, a TTD, that can detect any time um, time control technologies themselves are activated. And it's a very important part of our four-step plan because we have to be able to regular, regulate and monitor on a global basis what is happening. So you think we'd ever end up with, like, time police? Um, I, I, I think we have to. I, I, I think, uh, you know, the, the question is now, you know, a lot of people ask Freeman, why don't you just stop? Why, why do you keep moving forward and, and create a need for something like the time police? It's too late, Freeman. It's far too late. Too many people have their hands on the technology, and not all of them have the best interests of the global consciousness and a global society at heart. And the technology is going to be experimented with. What we need to make sure is that it's guided with wisdom and that we do monitor it. So in a way, yes, we do need um, a world time organization, as we label it, or um, a time police, if you want to be a little more a dramatic and play to the sci-fi. It's it's very accurate description. This is too much, Dr. Anderson. This is a, a mind-blowing topic that uh, <laughs> I just love. It's fantastic. I, you, you're, at, you're with the perfect audience here. I'll tell you that right now. Uh, uh, well, you know, it's it, it's an absolutely amazing field. You know, sometimes, Freeman, and, and for your audience, you know, you have a very interesting audience, and I know they're very open-minded. And at the Anderson Institute, we're a group of scientists, mathematicians, computer scientists, um, uh, pretty much your stereotypical. Uh, but we do encourage our own staff and, and everybody around us to take a multidisciplinary approach to time. And if any of your people are out there saying, this guy is nuts, 
read. Please visit our website. Take a look at, at the cultures that have evolved on the same planet that have no concept of time and how they look at us as being totally insane when we say time is linear and it moves forward. Uh, take a look at the cultures. Take a look at the expressions in literature and art of the sciences that have been around and proven for decades, yet we kind of shrink the magic of all this to our daily routine and material possessions. We don't want to see it, but it's very real and it's very exciting. Well, you, you had mentioned off there that uh, some people inside of the Institute might have heard of the Freeman Perspective. Uh, oh, absolutely. Um, actually, we have a, we have a program. Um, literally, everybody on our team uh, comes out of the world of science, mathematics, or computer science. Um, but we have a policy that eight hours of everybody's work every month must be on the presentation, group discussion, and study of a non-scientific perspective of time. This is why we encourage the, the study of time from the expression in art, in literature, in historical religious views, and spirituality, across physics, and uh, other observed phenomenon that some people would call frontier science or just totally, you know, uh, wacky or nuts. The fringe. The fringe, yes. Where we are. But, you know, Freeman, in, in a way, um, people have been struggling for millennia to understand the nature of time, and we still don't. Um, uh, so we have to look at it from every perspective. There's not one right and wrong answer. They're all part and one and the same. Right. Well, okay, we're coming up on a break again in these commercials. Uh, I was thinking about old Dr. Doom, Major Ed Dames, who uh, founded SciTech. He also was working with the military, and they were not at all interested in his psychic technologies that he was developing. I'm wondering about you and uh, when you left the Air Force, and we'll have to pick that up after the break. Uh, did they want your time travel technology? So we ended that with me talking a little bit about Dr. Doom and his psychic or sci-tech technology and opening LLCs to, to use psychic technology. Now, he had been working for the military, and they were refusing to accept his technology, and he went out and began his own corporation. Can't say anything about his predictions so far. I haven't seen any come right, but that's not the point of this question. Uh, I wanted to ask you, Dr. Anderson, why the Air Force didn't keep you on. Oh, I would I would enjoyed that quite immensely. And before I answer this question, I I want to preface this with I am uh, uh, the Air Force recruited me at quite a young age, and they gave me opportunities to do things that most people would live a lifetime and never get to touch. I was given access to resources and technologies and opportunities that were phenomenal. So I'm very grateful to the Air Force. And at the time I was working with them, uh, we were on a on a mission on a that was related to high-speed navigation systems, uh, space-based. I can't get into the more detail. Uh, and I had recognized a phenomenon and a relationship I wanted to explore that had tremendous potential with regards to time control technology. However, uh, the organization, I had talked to Air Force Systems Command, my colleagues over at DARPA, and a couple other agencies, and at the time they were so focused on the mission 
that they really didn't take the time to truly understand the implications that were there until, uh, Freeman, it was two weeks prior uh, to my separation. I had shipped my household goods, sold everything I had. I didn't have a bed to sleep in, and my separation was refused. Uh, somebody at Air Force Systems Command who finally got a hold of the paper uh, understood it, and um, I actually had to petition uh, with Senator Rockefeller in West Virginia and start a congressional inquiry to get released because by that time I had already committed I wanted to move forward and launch the Time Technology Research Center. And uh, uh, so it was quite an interesting story. Um, I don't know what would have happened if I would have stayed in the Air Force. Uh, I'm kind of glad that you're out on the, in the open, not behind the, the covert doors of the military. You're able to come out here and talk to me now. Uh, what what can we look at in the future of time travel? Is it going to be a rich man's game? Well, you know, for so many strategic and tactical reasons, uh, you know, governments uh, and the ones who are controlling the technology want to keep it classified and kept secret. And like we talked about before, uh, you could even say that, Probably, um, and, and right now it's true, and I can tell you for a fact, I've sat in with the Ministry of Technologies in China, uh, in India, uh, in, um, in Korea, in, in multiple countries, in different government agencies, and it's only the highest-ranking officials that are being allowed to know that the technology is available. And, but these politicians are really subject to the same temptations, and uh, they really don't want to let the, the, the general public know. And most likely it will be a rich man's game, and it will be a rich country's game, or a country that has a technological superiority uh, within the field of, of um, uh, time controls. And, uh, you know, in the cases of time wars, these leaders actually think they can view future battlefields and change plans based upon effectiveness uh, by looking into the future. Uh, and if they have a failed operation, they can send communications back to themselves in time to notify themselves about it. Uh, you know, while this technology has such a great potential to save lives, it's being looked at from such a weaponization standpoint. But still, with that said, uh, the real issue is we're using technologies that we don't understand the consequences of. Yes. I, I do a study of corporate logos and their occult meanings, and I couldn't help but notice your corporate logo. It looks very oh. similar to the missile defense uh, corporate logo that they have just come out, kind of coupled with the Obama logo. Uh, I, I have to ask, just uh, did you design that, or where did that come from? Wow, you know, that, those are two interesting twists. I've heard it called, it looks like a stealth fighter. I've heard it that it's, it resembles the Freemason symbol. Um, but actually, if you look at it closely, it's an A for Anderson, an M for multinational, the parent corporation of, uh, of the Anderson Institute. So is there more to it than that? I can't confirm or deny that, Freeman. All right. Are you a Freemason? Uh, sorry. I'm sorry. The connection broke up. I, I, I can't yeah. deny right. anything. Uh, did you witness the Norway spiral? I did not witness it, no. I've, I've seen actually the pictures? I've seen some pictures, but I really haven't had a chance to delve into it uh, myself. Okay, I just thought I'd ask. Some people had connected this with some of the the ancient Bell uh, Nazi experiments. You, the, have you heard of the Nazi Bell experiments? Uh, no, I can't say I have. I'm a little more focused, a little more aware of some of the work that was done in the former Soviet Union than uh, in Germany. Okay, just thought I'd check with that because some people had some questions. Uh, whether there was a connection with this Norway spiral and the attempts at time travel in Norway. Uh, but we can pick that up next time, perhaps, when uh, we get you back. 
Wonderful. All right. Uh, so why don't we get into some of the different types of technologies? What, what are some of the different time travel devices or abilities out there? Well, um, there's... There's different types of technologies that are used, and really the first place to start when you talk about uh, time control technologies uh, is really to break it into two categories. Um, and unfortunately, it's, 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 I don't want me to make it complicated, but there are technologies that are based upon special relativity uh, developed by Albert Einstein that require very fast speeds and accelerations across distance to dilate time. And then there's a phenomenon called closed time-like curves. Uh, some of the capabilities that are being experimented with in, uh, in California, in uh, New Mexico, in Japan, and very soon in Korea and also in India are quantum tunneling. This is the ability to use uh, what's called in physics a uh, evanescent wave coupling effect where you can actually send information, for example, in... Um, uh, in Princeton University, they use the cesium chamber, where you send information into a chamber, and the information actually finishes leaving before it finishes entering. It actually travels faster than the speed of light backwards in time. This is an effect in uh, a physics called quantum tunneling, uh, and it's used for uh, sending information forward uh, or backwards in time. There's the capabilities of near light speed travel, um, that allow you to, uh, um, as you get closer to the speed of light, uh, time dilation uh, occurs. For example, that astronaut who travels away to a distant star and returns will be much younger than the twin brother she left behind on Earth. Uh, there's something called an Alcubierre warp drive, which is uh, we have some wonderful pictures of on our website. Um, uh, but imagine you're in a rowboat. Uh, on a lake, Freeman, or if your listeners can, uh, if you were to go to the front of the rowboat and create a well in the water, pull the water down, and raise the water behind the rowboat, essentially the, the boat would kind of slip forward into the well and would slide across the top of the water. And that's the phenomenon of, a, of an Alcopier warp drive that's being considered for long-distance spaceflight. Faster than light travel um, is, is another approach, but is not possible within our laws of physics. Um, um, However, technologies like time warp field technology that used, uh, use closed time-like curves, um, other technologies like circulating light beams being proposed by scientists at the University of Connecticut, um, and wormholes and other naturally occurring phenomena like cosmic strings can uh, create fields to close time-like curve and allow time travel to the past. Well, I mentioned your first DVD, Time Travel, Journeys into Time. Uh, I hear you have another one coming out. Would you like to tell us about a little bit about your DVDs, where we could find them, and how we could get them? Well, certainly. Uh, one, of our, one of our first uh, DVDs was Time Travel, Journeys into Time. It's a great introduction to man's struggle to understand the true nature of time through the ages. It's available on Amazon.com. Uh, we have the AndersonInstitute.com website. Uh, it is uh, a free source of information, a multidisciplinary source of information to many aspects of studying time. We have a lot of free information and uh, a growing library of, uh, uh, of educational uh, archives related to time that are going to be uh, posted over the coming months. So a lot of things happening there. But our flagship project right now, Freeman, is our new documentary where um, going back to our message about full transparency and disclosure, we kind of want to blow the lid off of this. Uh, a new documentary called Time Will No Longer Tell uh, will be released by us uh, uh, in less than two months and will be available on Amazon.com and, and announced on our website and uh, via Facebook as well.
Well, I will definitely be looking to that, and I'm linked to you on Facebook as well. You can find me on Facebook, people, if uh, you look for Freeman Fly. Uh, it's the only thing in my repertoire that's not Freeman TV. <laughs> uh, so you can hook up with Dr. Anderson on Facebook at, uh, is it Anderson Institute? No, just uh, David Lewis Anderson, and uh, okay. you're welcome to speak with any of your listeners at any time. Fantastic. I think you're going to have a whole bunch more friends. Well, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing that DVD for sure. That's uh, because this is all so incredible and yet so pertinent and so uh, necessary to understand because you know, where this all goes. Oh, we had one question in the chat room. Have you yourself uh, traveled through time? I have uh, I have been involved in experiment, experiments where I've been inside a time warp field, uh, active in operation, absolutely yes, and uh, on a regular basis. Uh, uh, this is occurring in India and uh, other locations in the U.S. Uh, as well. What did you see? Well, it's interesting. Uh, the, the, the experience within a time warp field, and I can speak to that directly, is different from individual to individual. Um, uh, some people have no effect. Other people experience incredible excitement. Other people have claimed to have spiritual awakenings. There are some physical effects like uh, tingling. Uh, some people do experience a little bit of, of nausea uh, and other things. But we don't know what truly causes some of that. We know some of the physical effects. But we're putting people in an environment uh, that is so remarkably different in a shock to their senses that we don't know if this is the human um, the human condition you know when you put a when you put a human being in a, a very different and unusual situation the reactions can be everything from spiritual to nothing we don't know if that's what we're seeing or if it's truly uh, you know creating opening new doors for people inside a field interesting so we're still caught up in the the idea is it mental or is it physical but I got to tell you, Freeman, if I could add an additional comment, um, the, the, the one of the most amazing effects is not people inside the field. It's when people observe a field firsthand, which we hope to include in our next video. But the, the reaction is initially disbelief, skepticism. Uh, then it's total shock um, and disbelief. Or, or shock. But what happens after that is deep emotion. We've seen people laugh hysterically when they see what can happen inside a field. When they actually see inside a field the time speed up or slow down, when they see objects that should be falling or moving upwards or um, come reverse themselves and defy the laws of nature, um, and they see a, say, a plant or a flower regress in aging, uh, and they see this in front of their eyes and they can stick their hand through a field, uh, they experience everything from tears to laughter. And, and the most amazing thing, Freeman, and I talk about it a lot, is I can almost guarantee you that two weeks, one or two weeks after a visit to our facility, people will call me and say they cannot go about life the same way anymore because the reality that they, re they know is real um, doesn't relate. What they've seen is such a, and they've experienced for their entire life, is just a fraction of what they know now is real. Well, that is what I'm hoping will occur. That as all these things transpire, we start to realize our limitations, our limited thought, and, and just these possibilities just totally reorient our entire experience on planet Earth. 
That's so, so so well said. Uh, you know, Freeman, p- people don't realize we're kind of like an old old TV, not for the young kids out there that grew up on digital cable, but for a lot of us who are older, uh, that old television set sitting on the table, and it has a tuner on it, and it tunes into those waves of information and energy flowing through the sky. Uh, our minds are like that tuner. Um, our minds are, have the capability to tune into that true reality and universe of information and energy, but the problem is our tuners are limited. Uh, our senses don't let us see what's truly out there, but it's around us all the time. It's inside of us all the time. And, and I like your words on it, and uh, we have so much opportunity to grow and to learn. Absolutely. Um, I'm out for that. And I love pushing the boundaries. I love thinking outside of the box. And I know that the world is not as it appears and that we're all kind of hanging back in our little boxes, not witnessing what's really going on around us. I think pretty soon in Wikipedia, under the definition of pushing the, the boundaries, we're going to see Freeman as a fundamental <laughs> part of that definition pretty soon. Hey, I would love that. Uh, I've yet to have a Wikipedia page. Do you have one on time travel? Uh, we have some with regards to some of our uh, foundation projects with the United Nations and youth programs. Uh, we actually have a cycle on and off um, depending on what we're saying. Some interests seem to like to turn us off. Uh, we were recently there, then we weren't, then we were, and now we're not. Right. Uh, I, I know how Wikipedia can be. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of uh, reorienting timelines in the Internet. There's no doubt about that. Uh, well, so why is time so difficult to understand? Well, I, I think there's there's a couple different reasons. Uh, the human psychology, we just talked about the limitations of the human senses, the, our inability to perceive very much of the true reality around us. We know from science that's true. The function of the brain, the human mind, we try to, the, the function is to rationalize what our senses perceive with our belief system. If we can't perceive it, it's not real. Um, maybe human psychology. Uh, some of my favorite quotes, time is the fire in which we burn. Um, uh, time is a great teacher, but unfortunately it kills all its pupils. We always feel the passing of time. We feel pushed by it, and we always feel it's linked to our own mortality. Also, we've gone a little materialistic, Freeman. Uh, sometimes we shrink our, the magic of the world to our daily routine and material possessions. But the true barrier really to learning and understanding is our biological cultural, and cultural evolution. Biologically, the human mind evolved for limited purposes. We have limited senses. They're not fully developed. We know they only perceive a fraction of reality. Um, our mind rationalizes. Uh, think about cultural evolution. We're having this conversation. People on the other side of the world would think we're nuts. Uh, as crazy as we think they are, that all time exi- when they say all time exists at the same place, your listeners might be thinking of that. Some cultures think we're nuts. Then we say time is linear and it moves like an arrow. They think we're crazy. What's right in one culture is wrong in another. And I'd remind you know, your listeners is that the way they sense time is formed by patterns of survival formed over thousands of years. Uh, that blinds us to perceiving the true nature of reality. Uh, we don't see the universe uh, and reality the way it is. We see it the way we are. And that's the first step to really learning and understanding is overcoming that. So would we be able to go back and, say, stop 9-11 from happening? Uh, absolutely. Um, the problem is, well, do we know the ramifications of that? Uh, right. Do we know what the ripple effect is um, and why we intend to do good? 
um, the complex web of interdependencies that go even with the smallest change in re-engineering history, we don't understand. There are so many opportunities um, and so many good intentions that could go wrong here, like have, as a human society we've demonstrated before we can do. It's true. It is very true. And that is uh, very dangerous, not knowing. I suppose I'd rather just try and reorient now. Well, when we get back, uh, we're going to discuss the World Genesis Foundation and Dr. Anderson's uh, ambassadorialship to the youth at the U.S. Oh, a higher love is necessary. With all this technology opening up, we better find our spiritual selves here and quick so that we can start putting these things to good use and uh, find our global community. And on the ideas of global community, I'd like to ask you a little bit about your World Genesis Foundation, Dr. Anderson. Oh, thank you so much for asking. I, I always enjoy talking about it, but it's risky bringing me in because I'll talk too much. Uh, we, I, I'm, I was uh, working with a group of people back in 1999, and we established a foundation called the World Genesis Foundation. Uh, it's a not-for-profit corporation, and it's committed to a simple mission, uh, to leave no child without hope for the future. And we have a very specific charter. We work in cooperation with the United Nations Educational Science and Culture Organization and other partners, and we go and work in areas of the world to create opportunities for youth where opportunities are limited or simply unavailable. So when we go in to do a program, we're basically trying to work in situations where there are no alternatives and every program and every dollar, every minute volunteered by somebody with the World Genesis Foundation kind of creates hope from hopelessness. And there is just incredible need there. And if anybody's interested, um, our foundation is called the World Genesis Foundation. It's worldgenesis.org. Um, uh, is good background there of what we do and the projects we're involved in. And, and also for any of you Amazon.com shoppers out there, we have a project with them called HopeMart.org. Uh, like Walmart, but Hope Mart. And uh, if you purchase on Amazon, you'll still get the same great products from Amazon and the same great service, but they will in turn donate money to create opportunities for you. So I hope you check it out, and uh, thanks for the opportunity to say a few words for me. Not a problem. The youth are our future, and I, I definitely, hoping a lot of children are listening to the show. I know a lot do. You know, I get 10, 11-year-olds writing me saying uh, they love the show and they love the experience, and to me, that's everything. That's, that's you know, the old folks, like Ryle said, are going to die and be replaced by you. Well, if we wanted to understand a bit more about this and get a little deeper into understanding time travel technologies, is there some literature or books that you might recommend? First thing I would recommend is visit the Anderson Institute. Uh, all the information posted there is for free, and we're going to see a significant expansion. There's several hundred pages of information there now, a lot more coming before the, uh, the end of this summer. Uh, also, um, I'd encourage you after that to contact us. If you find, an, if one of your listeners finds an area of interest and would like to delve further, we have connections all around the world with experts in so many areas, whether it be time-controlled technology or uh, remote viewing or other uh, experiments in time or beliefs in time. Uh, some of my favorite books, though, I have to admit, for your younger viewers, Freeman, would be uh, some of the science fiction books because they have some valuable lessons for us. Is it okay if I mention a few of my favorites? Please do. Well, uh, time has been around in uh, works for, for a long time. Uh, uh, even as early as 2000 B.C., there was the Gilgamesh epic. It was a Babylon work searching for ultimate knowledge and immortality. But some of the best works about time travel and classics today, uh, in 1880, were Edwin Abbott's Flatlands, 
um, followed by Mark Twain's A Yankee in the Court of King Arthur. And then in 1895, H.G. Wells introduced his classic work, The Time Machine. And fascinating work, uh, a book published in 1895 that has never been out of print, not something that many books can really say. But i got to tell you, Freeman, for your listeners, um, a lot of people uh, might be surprised, but my favorite book is the obscure, more obscure work by Edwin Abbott called Flatlands. And it's about these two-dimensional creatures that lived in a two-dimensional, two-dimensional world, like, a, like on a piece of paper. Imagine a god as a creature living on a piece of paper, moving back and forth on the paper, running into lines or boxes that might represent walls or, or fences or their homes or their doors. And until one day they're moving around in a little two-dimensional world in a three-dimensional sphere, comes moving down, it touches their two-dimensional world, they see it appear like a dot, as it it passes through, it grows, it shrinks, and then it vanishes into nothing. To these two-dimensional creatures, perceiving and visualizing a higher dimension dimension was a very difficult proposition. They only knew north, south, east, and west. They didn't know up and down. And I like that because just like the creatures in Flatland, we're as have as many barriers in his minds as they did. Why we can see a sphere above a piece of paper, we can't see that time is simply another dimension of space. But just to blow your elite reader's mind, I'll recommend another book. It's called Space-Time Physics. It was written by two uh, friends of mine, uh, Edwin Taylor and John Archibald Wheeler, who just passed away two years ago. Um, and I'll blow your mind with something that book presents. Take your wristwatch and arbitrarily, just hypothetically, convert time to meters using the speed of light as a constant. And what you'll find out is something is created called invariance of the space-time interval, which can boil down many elements of space-time physics to basic algebra. Think about that. Time is different. It's different than north, south, east, west, and up and down. Besides, we've always treated it differently. However, if for a moment you treat it the same and you convert it to meters or feet, whatever your favorite units are, um, what you'll find out is that the difficult problems of space-time physics boil down to algebra, but we can't perceive it. But a book called Space-Time Physics by John Archibald Wheeler and Edwin Taylor. All right. One of my favorites is The Tao of Physics. Oh, great book. Great book. Fantastic. Well, Dr. Anderson, in your time travel, do you have any predictions for us for the future? Yes, the future is uncertain. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I do have a prediction. Um, um, we're playing with technologies as a society that we shouldn't be playing with without understanding the consequences. To the listeners, my prediction is if we can't accomplish full disclosure and, uh, and transparency and, and get an educational program done, we can solve that problem. We will solve that problem. The, the challenge is um, if we do not set up a global moral compass that guides how we use this technology that crosses political, geographic, uh, uh, lines, lines of religions and ethnicity and language, we will not solve this problem. We have to begin acting as a single global consciousness and a guiding force that determines how not only we use this technology today, but we develop it. And my only prediction is the future is uncertain. Uh, it is possible we could go through a lot more pain, but I am an optimist. I do believe that it's very possible we can solve this problem. As a matter of fact, when we talk about a technology as dangerous as this, uh, I believe it's something can actually unify the global uh, uh, global societies and the global consciousness.
Well, that is what we are all hoping for. As we watch all of this unfold before our very eyes, the idea of Michael Jackson traveling through time, the cloning of humans, the punching holes through the other dimension, all of these things that are just hitting this generation. And it's it's got to open our minds to the spiritual aspects of life and, and how all of this can come together in a positive light. Give this snake charmer our answer. <laughs> By the power of in high places with the power to put us on the run. Well, forgive us these smiles on our faces. You'll know what power is when we are done, son. You're playing with the big boys now. Playing with the big boys now. Oh, that's pretty. Every spell and gesture tells you who's the best. You're playing with the big boys now. You're playing with the big boys now. You're playing with the big boys now. Stop this foolish mission. What's a true magician? Give an exhibition how. Pick up your city kid boy. You're playing with the big boys now. years minus one month before Spielberg, Katzenberg, and Geffen produced the top-grossing non-Disney animation The Prince of Egypt, Alistair Crowley was initiated into the Order of the Golden Dawn. What initiations do you think you have unknowingly participated in? The song I played for you is the You're Playing with the Big Boys Now. This was penned by Stephen Swartz and sang by Martin Short and Steve Martin. Acting the parts of the pharaoh's magicians, Hoy and Hotep, 
with Val Kilmer as Moses and God. Now, how is it that billions of people have read these passages in the Bible and still don't think magic has something to do with their existence? That magic is just something written off as uh, tomfoolery. Well, we're here to uncover these deeper mysteries, to look deeper into these type of stories and understand where exactly and what exactly this all has to do with. I've been trying to cover such things as symbolic gestures and uh, even the coded meanings within numbers such as 9-11. I had said that 9-11 was reference to the idea of Lucifer being one above the ten, being above the tree of life. So you have ten sephirah in the Kabbalistic tree of life. If you go from nine to eleven, you skip ten, which is the perfected unit, the one and the zero, the hermaphrodite, kether, also known as heaven or God. When you go from the ninth position on the tree of life and skip to the eleventh, you have therefore achieved the idea of the magician without knowledge of God, without the use of the holy powers, the Holy Spirit. So how shocked was I as I started to view this prince of Egypt and I see as the Egyptian magicians stand there to duel with Moses, they begin to dance and they do hand signs and gestures and the very hand sign they make is Aleister Crowley's unicursal hexagram. And above their heads is the arching Nuit, the goddess of the infinite night. Was this intended? Are Spielberg, Katzenberg, and Geffen in on this? Is DreamWorks some sort of magical order? You better believe it. So as we start to look deeper, you have to understand that this just gets crazy. And this is something I hope to share with you. A book I picked up from Treadwell Bookstore there in London on Tavistock Street. It is known as Aleister Crowley and the Hidden God. And it's written by his accolade, Kenneth Grant. This book is dedicated to the serpent and the star. And this will become more and more uh, intriguing and fulfilling as we explore these ideas. You see, as I express these things to you, often I'm not certain that everyone thinks as I do. I certainly base everything I tell you off of things that I have researched, depths that I have gone, and thoughts that I have had. But often I'm, ga- I'm grabbing, I'm, I'm using my knowledge to, to fulfill a hypothesis, and, well, it seems that the more I look into it, the more I find I'm correct. And this is kind of strange for me. So I don't really know where it all comes from or how it comes out to you, but uh, I'm here to share, and we'll find our way through this. Because what we have to recognize is the power of these magicians, what I call the sorcerers of Atlantis as they control our very minds and the concepts of existence that we live by. They impregnate our mind with uh, silly thoughts and coded meanings, and we find that we are being led majorly astray. So to look to one that seemed to have been the herald of the new aeon, he considered it himself, Aleister Crowley the Beast, also known as Baphomet, was to introduce the new aeon of Horus that we have come into during his lifetime, as each aeon takes somewhere around 2,000 years. It's said that we're going into the fifth within 
the Crowley cult. So as we start to look at this picture and uh, try to understand, we have to realize what we're looking at, do we not? And Hollywood should show you and does show you most of what is going on deep behind the scenes. The book, Aleister Crowley and the Hidden God, is an explanation or a critical study of Aleister Crowley's system of sexual magic with its affinities to the ancient tantric rites of Kali, the dark goddess of blood and dissolution. This is represented in Crowley's cult as the Scarlet Woman. Have you seen the lady in red? This is an attempt to express and explain some more of the deeper meanings of Crowley's uh, somewhat enigmatic magic. As a result of many years of research, Kenneth Grant has gone into the obscure phases of occultism and has evolved a system of dream control for contact with extraterrestrials and non-human entities. This is the power that he speaks of that Aleister Crowley brought along with others like Austin Spare and Dion Fortune. What truly struck me, well, there were many things that truly struck me about this book, but the first was the very first chapter, The One Beyond Ten. It was the idea and the concept of the number 11, as I had expressed it and known it to be without even knowing these inner doctrine secrets. You see, the K added to the end of the word magic that Aleister Crowley placed there is the 11th letter in numerous alphabets. The purpose and the meaning of 11 goes to the Quilapoth, or what some call the Quipoth. I honestly have never heard anyone speak this word correctly. You've seen it in my lectures. It's a word that is spelt sometimes Q-L-I-P-P-O-T-H. Quipoth. Quilpoth. Something of that matter. But it's important to magicians. It's important to sorcery because this is the dark side. This is the Jungian subconscious, unconscious. This is the idea of the wild human. This is the dark side of the tree of life. It is encountered with beings such as Lilith and Samael and Azrael. It is the binders, the uh, death dealers, the dark side. And they are numbered within Crowley's magic as the number 11. Now you'll realize that I've also discussed the number of 66 being the number of the Quiplof. <laughs> I'm going to try and say it any way that I possibly can. Klepoth, Klopoth. Uh, it's linked on Freeman TV. Just go look it up. Because you'll see that this is the whole uh, mechanism behind what we're doing. And you must realize that what Crowley had founded and what he had become after 1898 and entering the Golden Dawn was this new adept that was going to herald the new aeon of Horus. Now, as I've shown and expressed throughout numerous symbolic gestures and the uh, occult meanings of corporate logos, you will quickly see that this is the very magic being translated through these very symbols and logos. So when I saw and expressed the number 66 in the VV and the W and the 666 in VW and the 666 in CERN and the Fox 666 and all of the satanic symbols of the I being the devil or Ion in the tarot and all of these uh, satanic 
symbols and gestures that I see, I must express to you that, well, it's getting harder and harder not to believe in it. Uh, As we express and explore the ideas of Satanism, and even you look to the Church of Satan, you quickly find that they are not religious. They are not deist, or they seem to be an atheistic religion. That was the reason that Michael Aquino, the general inside of the MKUltra, or the CIA mind operatives, uh, set off to create the Temple of Set, because he wanted to bring the Satanism, Satan back to Satanism. This all will become very curious, and, and you will start to see what I'm saying is the number 10 was regarded by Kabbalists as the stable number of the system of divine emanations, or the Sephirah, on the Tree of Life. The number 11 was considered a cursing, because it was outside of this system. Therefore, Aleister Crowley, known as Master Therion, used 11 as his formula. In the Book of the Law, the goddess Nuit exclaims, My number is 11. When you look at the number 11, you see immediately 2, because you have two ones, and this is the number of the goddess. But 11 breaks it down to bringing out the bipolarity, or poles, into the system, having two ones instead of simply a 2. This is how symbolic uh, the nature of numbers are. So now this 11 is actually a direct allusion to the Agentum Astrum, which is the Order of the Silver Star, which Aleister Crowley had founded. Crowley sought to find these secret masters, these hidden chiefs that he had read upon in a book called The Cloud Upon the Sanctuary. Nothing was going to stop him. He was out to understand and contact this hidden order. He was given understanding to the system of grades and knew it, as he found, was the great outside, represented physically as infinite space or the infinite stars thereon. Nuit and Isis are thus identified in the Book of the Law. Isis is terrestrial space illumined by the stars. Nuit is the outer infinite space, the undying darkness that is the hidden source of light. So it was that Aleister Crowley joined the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, soon to be warring with its master, Samuel Little McGregor Mathers. On November 18th of 1898, he walked in for his initiation, and he took on the name called Perduabu, Perduabu, meaning I shall endure, a motto undoubtedly suggested by his acquaintance with biblical lore going to the phrase saying, I shall endure to the end, for at the end is there not to endure. Purdue Abu. The Golden Dawn attracted people who were either dissatisfied with tr- traditional Christianized Masonic teachings or unwilling to accept Oriental concepts filtered through the brilliant, though not always flawless, prism of Madame Velatsky's Theosophical Society. Within a year of his initiation, Crowley's advance in the Golden Dawn has been so swift that he attained the highest grade which was possible for Mathers to entitle him. In the year 1903, Crowley was the most advanced adept in the world. In August of 1903, he married Rose Kelly, Rose Edith Kelly, who within a year of their marriage was instrumental in putting him in touch with an occult intelligence of incalculable power one that was to remain with him till the rest of his life. 
Through this intelligence, named Awas, Crowley received the Book of the Law in 1904. Among other things, the Golden Dawn taught a technique for acquiring mastery of the astral plane, during which the projected astral body of the magician was identified with an Egyptian god form. When practicing the assumption of a god form, Perturabu, or Crowley, chose the form of Horus, one of his oldest deities known to man. He sealed the plasm of his astral body in the mentally formulated image of a golden hawk, a vehicle of Horus, and in that form he explored the subtle aethers of the universe. The technique of assuming the god form of ritually evoking and banishing astral, elemental, and planetary entities forms the substance of Aleister Crowley's book, Within the Golden Dawn, which he later published as the Equinox, Volume 1. Crowley seemed to succeed where Mathers had failed through proper application of the magical methods taught by Mathers. Crowley was able to pitch his consciousness into the reciprocal harmony with what proved to be an indubitably powerful intelligence. By repeatedly assuming the god form of Horus, Crowley attuned his consciousness to the vibrations emanating from the sphere of that complex of cosmic power. In this way, he prepared himself to receive the Book of the Law, technically called Liber A.L. Vel Ligus. This book will be referred to as L, or A.L. L was transmitted to Crowley by the disincarnate intelligence named Awas in 1904 for an hour precisely from noon till 1 p.m. on April 8th, 9th, and 10th. Crowley was in Cairo. Awas dictated the substance of the book which forms the most important magical document of the new aeon. A full account of the transaction is given by Crowley in his confessions. The secret chiefs not only authorized Crowley to supplant Mathers as head of the Golden Dawn, they also made it clear that he was specially chosen to establish a new epoch in the evolution of the consciousness on this planet, over which the god Horus would preside for the next 2,000 years. Horus was invoked when we had the Y2K ritual, as the England burnt the river Thames to the speed of the sun, symbolizing the river Styx into the underworld. Then in America, we had the sun rise in the west, which was the sun, or a light, shining behind the Lincoln Memorial, so bright that it could be seen as the sun rising from Europe. And then, of course, Bill Clinton standing before the crowd saying, it is a rising sun. There were many Horus connections in that, and I'll refer you to my film on corporate logos and their occult meanings. Also get to Columbia, the Illuminati goddess. Because as you can see, this is all going to transpire into this very same story. So what we see is that there are magical currents that infuse with the aura of the planet, and this is how they work the magic. And what has happened now is Osiris, or the uh, sacrificed god, is being supplanted by Horus, the avenging god. So this is also shown, as I've spoken about, in Batman and Superman becoming evil or dark heroes. We see it expressed in even Batman becomes Azrael, the very quillopothic power I've been talking about. Don't believe me? Go look it up. <laughs> they actually had to have Bruce Wayne come back and beat up Azrael because no one wanted a bloodthirsty Batman. 
So Crowley's uh, minister, his uh, contact on the other side, this indubitable intelligence, was known as a WAS. He was known to be an Atlantean. This Awas is also known as Har Pur Karet. Sometimes Her Pur Karet. Kuit. And this is a form of, of Horus, more generally known as Set or Shaitan. So as we start to see that Har Pur Karet is actually the manifestation in the speech of the God of Silence. This is where you see all of the pop stars putting sh on their fingers and holding their finger to their lips. This is the symbol of the enterer as you begin a ritual. That triangle that you're seeing that most, you know, obviously think is the eye or the pyramid, which in a way, yes, it is. Uh, but within magical ritual, that pyramid triangle that you make with your hands is the sign of manifestation. So you're going to learn a lot more about magic through me. I'm going to publish these two works very soon. I know I've been getting many messages about where the Sorcerers of Atlantis and the Hannah Montana uh, operation, culture creation. Well, I'll tell you, we're working, 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 and uh, we're gathering so many details and data that you're, you're going to be blown away, and it's going to trip and turn a lot of things on their heads. Because as you'll see, what we'll find is that what we're looking at here is called the left-hand path of magic or black magic, which actually goes to the goddess worship. And this is our goddess Columbia and all the numerous goddesses throughout the time. And this is considered a dark magic. But as we'll see, you know, this is uh, dependent on the magician, it seems, or the aeon. We're going to learn. That's our, our goal here is to learn. So... Uh, Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for joining me on Radio Freeman here on Revere Radio Network. And uh, be sure to visit freemantv.com. And don't be afraid to click on everything you see. Because everything there is set to generate some thoughts that you probably never had. Don't expect the obvious to be behind those links. Uh, I don't make it obvious. But I want you to explore and there are some amazing things coming and amazing things viewed on there. I would love to be a person that just fell upon my blog and started clicking because uh, it's well worth the, the time. So thank you. So we start to look at this uh, description of the chosen priest, Crowley, 666. The beast 666 is the dragon with seven heads mentioned in Revelation. Its occult significance shows in what manner the number 666 is the number of man. For the seven heads represents the seven stations of the pole star, each of which fell or sank down in vast periodic intervals, the entire process taking 26,000 years. Of course, this is what we know as the cycle of the procession. The seven heads of the beast were typified by various images that had their earthly prototypes as symbols of magical power. The sinking and final disappearance of the sixth head made way for that of man, i.e., the star, represented by the first human image ever constellated in the heavens, the sign of Heru, Horus, the hero or Hercules of the later Greek astro-mythology. The image of the beast, the dragon, or seven-headed serpent formed the basal design for the floor of the vault of the adepts in the golden dawn. To each head was assigned a name of the Aquilophothic, <laughs> Clephothic, Clephotic, Clephotic, 
Hey, how about that? Clephotic or demonic forces, the number of which is 11. Let's take that one more time real quick. The image of the beast, the dragon, or the seven-headed serpent, formed the basal design on the floor of the vault of the adepts in the golden dawn. To each head was assigned a name of the quillophotic or demonic force, the number of which is 11. Yeah, you try it. <laughs> so we start to see that what we're looking at here is a powerful sexual magic that actually admonishes sex with children, that uh, even, you know, exemplifies the idea of the, the you know, butt rape. And uh, this was a magical secret that Crowley had unveiled to the public unknowingly. I believe that was in the Book of Lies. And in writing this book, he had uh, caught the attention of the head of the Ordo Templi Orientis, or the Order of the Eastern Templar. This is a scale of the fraternity of just above the idea of masonry. Now, what I've learned and what I've seen throughout time, you say at Esozone, was this connection between OTO, Ordo Templi Orientis, Satanists like Rex Church, and Freemasons like the guys that were running the conference, uh, are all very uh, affinitive. They all are very much connected and have a lot of the same views and concepts of reality. So let's uh, realize all of these connections. So when we're looking at the Ordo OTO, this is... Uh, magical Freemasons that have gone up beyond the degrees of the 33 that have gone on to take on the other degrees within this cult. So the OTO demanded of Crowley, well, how is it that you know this secret of sex, the tantric sex magic, and especially the use of sex and pedophilia? And how is it that you've released this to the public? But Crowley was uh, ignorant of what he had done. He had just simply channeled this awas and it had been writing. And he would use different women as a scarlet woman to manifest the actual entity. It was they that made the contact. He was merely the, the scribe. It's always the woman that's necessary, and that is this left-hand path. One of the things I was going to mention about that is you're seeing everybody giving what's known as the El Diablo sign, or uh, maybe it's Hook 'em Horns in Texas, or I Love You in other places. But that very sign uh, not only is the mudra to ward off spirits, but is secretly and deeply encoded within masonry as the sign of Diana. So uh, you know we're going to take everything, turn it on its head, and we're going to look and we're going to understand. Well, what we're discussing here is a sex magic, but now Crowley's magic, I'll be invaluable to a student, but only to the advanced student, because the formula on which he works would be considered averse or evil by a cultist accustomed to Kabbalistic traditions, for he uses 11 instead of 10 as the basis of his battery of knocks. When you see his phrase, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law, there is 11 words. He uses 11 because this is the number of the quidflof. No hint of this is given in the text, and it's an ugly trap for the unwary student, or so says Dion Fortune. So it's true that the number of the 11 is the number of the quillopoth, clepoth, <laughs> or the unbalanced residue 
cast off by and therefore outside the ten sephirah. But man has to triumph, according to Kenneth Grant, over these unbalanced forces in his own nature before he can become a master magician. In order to do this, he must invoke or evoke the quitfloff, which he does by formulating the averse or inverted pentagram known as the Star of Set. After he has established his magical supremacy by balancing within himself the five elements represented by the upright pentagram or the Star of Nuid, the magician is himself the eleventh because he is forever outside and beyond the operation of the tenth, i.e. the sorcerer or magician. This is symbolized by two pentagrams. The magic of the Aeon of Horus consists in the realization of the identity of Kether, also represented as Nuit, and Malkuth, Hadit. The numbers of these Sephirah are one and ten, respectively. Their union in the consciousness of the magician produces Tipereth, or six, the sun's son, Horus, the lord of the Aeon. The magical formula of the great work, which is the process of uniting these two in consciousness, is Abra-Hadabra, the eleven-lettered word of power. And yes, you heard that correct. He changed it from Abra-Kadabra to Abra-Hadabra. The eleven-lettered word of power. Crowley describes a fortress or house of Horus in the Aeon of the Eleven Towers, in view of Crowley's references of, to the worship of Shaitan being equivalent to the worship of Had or Hadit. It is an, interesting to compare the Eleven Temples connected with a sect of Shaitan devotees still existing in the Syrian desert in the neighborhood of Baghdad. Crowley's magical title in the OTO was Baphomet, the Eightfold Name. Octonomos, the master magician. Baphomet is also elevenfold, as revealed by the Baphometic cross. It symbolizes not only the eleven Sephirah, i.e. the ten Sephirah plus Doth, there's a hidden Sephirah within the Tree of Life that you will see sometimes just drawn in below, but darkened in, and it's known as Doth. Now, let's consider some of what we're looking at here. When we're talking about this tree of life, we have these three pillars. The middle one taking you straight from Malkuth, or earth, to Kether, or heaven, which are also symbolized now in this inner working as Hadit and Nuit, that you know they sing about in happy cartoons for your children. The path on this is known as Gimel, and is represented by the high priestess in the Tarot. This path of Gimel which is always shown with the two columns, Jack and Boaz, is the straight path through the abyss, but typically a dangerous path. As you get to the area of Da'ath, the hidden Sephirah, this is the area of Coronazone, or the beast of the abyss, and it is said that many magicians get lost there. And as we start to look more into Crowley, we'll see that he lost many women there as well. The formula of force is 11 and 1 and 1 and 11. That is 418. That is how you look at magic. This is the understanding that you have to start to take in. Because every number, every aspect of this working has to be known. And therefore, when you are in the spirit and when you are, excuse me, uh, communicating with the demons, then 
you want to know who that demon is and you want to be able to challenge him and know his number, know his color, know everything about it. And this is why ritual is so precise. And this is also why many fail. And this is also why you'll find all of the symbolic gestures over and over and over again. But this number goes to Hadit and Shaitan. The magical theories which underlie the formula of the assumption of God forms are vital importance to understanding Crowley's refinement and rehabilitation of them. The formula which was used by the sorcerers of ancient world had a profound effect upon the psychology of the operator. Because man evolved from the beast, he possesses deeply buried in his subconsciousness the memories of superhuman powers he once possessed. Each animal typifies one or more such powers. Is this starting to sound like some of your Hollywood movies? So actually, when I was looking and I saw the uh, current commercials on the Super Bowl, one that struck my attention was the, uh, I believe it was Coca-Cola, uh, where a man has his eyes closed and he's walking across the Serengeti and there's all kinds of animals going past him. And finally, he sits down still with his eyes closed and sits with the hyenas. And this is who they are saying you are. And now check this. So as we start to look into magic, we find each animal typifies one or more such powers of these superhuman powers you once possessed. Uh, like the strength and subtlety of the leopard or seeing and sensing in the dark of a cat. The swift death-dealing power of the snake. The power of transformation for the hyena. And so on. Any required avatism, avatar, could be evoked by assumption of the appropriate God form, or Barack Obama. <laughs> you know, because I, I mean, really, I, you know, I think about that a lot. Like, why would they bring back Akhenaten? You know, why would they uh, have all this effect when actually what we see clearly is that this all has to do with DNA and that even expressed in Avatar, we see the concept that they needed a very particular DNA to join with this avatar and that is why the wrong man was chosen for the job and therefore was the thorn in their side uh, but the same idea would go to Akhenaten and his wife now I had heard tales this is uh, right now just uh, hearsay for me but I'm going to be looking that Zahi Hawass now you guys know he had built this six million dollar DNA lab in the Egyptian museum and he just released the results on King Tut and you'll find that linked up in the Space War News section. I guess I'll have to get another cloning news section. But uh, right now, all the cloning and Space War are going together under Space War News. But you know, it, they, they got into cloning on, on, the, on that very radio show or TV show that I show you. Uh, so what we see is that they are going deep into this DNA of, of uh, King Tut and found that he died of malaria, that he most likely was malformed due to the ancestral nature of his family, Akhenaten having sex with his sister, and creating this poor offspring, uh, who died a mere what, 19 years later. So, uh, <laughs> this idea that they need the particular frequency of DNA to channel a particular entity will become more and more clear as we start to look into Aleister Crowley. And maybe it'll explain why Obama carries around a monkey in his pocket. There is the formula of the divine ape. 
just being the link between man and beast. <sighs> Definitely gets into why. His name means lightning from heaven, and his catchphrase means thank you, Satan. So we're going to get deeper. This gets weirder and stranger and more intriguing as we go. Because who is this hidden God? What is its purpose? From the time Crowley entered the Golden Dawn in 1898 to the receipt of the work L in 1904, and for several years afterwards, sex had hit for him no particular occult significance. He used it in the normal course of events. His casual use of it, however, during his period of magical training explains his rapid progress in the order. The effects of the formula of the divine ape, augmented by the use of sex in his personal life, mysteriously released the serpent power or kundalini within him. Stuart Swerdlow says the same thing. Yet it was many years before Crowley acknowledged Awas as being identical with this demon, his genius or holy guardian angel. Awas, the minister of Harpur Karat, therefore equates with the solar phallic hermetic Lucifer the devil, Satan, or had it, of our particular unit of starry universe. This serpent, Satan, is not the enemy of man, but he who made gods of our race, knowing good and evil. He bade, know thyself, and taught initiation. Furthermore, Crowley typifies the true nature in every man and woman, the true will by the satyr, a form of Satan, or Set, Shaitan, Awas, the hidden God. More on the other side. Starting way back, yeah, when Yahweh was busting bubbles, contemplating this disease we call man's troubles.
Let's look upon this path with further investigation. How one species alone could cause such devastation? I'll make certain of this. It'll be the case how something so cold-blooded controls What is the meaning of the secret star, the silver star, the AA, or 11? After communicating L, or the Book of the Law, to Alistair Crowley, Awas withdrew behind the veil of the abyss and gave no further direct message to the world at large. But he continued to traffic with Therion, the master, Alistair Crowley, privately, and inspired the writing of several other holy books of Thelema wherein he identifies himself as Adonai. Adonai is usually translated as the Lord, but it has a more specific meaning. Adonai, or Adonuis, is a form of Ad, or Had, the Chaldean form of Set, the Lord of Hell, the Abyss, or the Underworld, in psychological terms, the subconscious. When Crowley was in a subtle contact with Adonai, he became Perduabu, VVVVV, or five Vs, and Therion, and he spoke with the authority of the secret chiefs behind the veil. Now, this uh, motto, VVVVV, or five Vs, was Crowley's uh, motto as master of the temple, the eighth degree, third rank, the AA. The five Vs are ascribed as five footprints of the camel. And as I was telling you, the path up the middle pillar is camel. And once again, when you look at your camel pack of cigarettes, you'll see that there is a great pyramid missing. And standing there is the camel, which is the letter G. So you see an encoded G on there, such as the G you find in the compass and square logo of the Freemasons. This is the path of Gimel, which is known as camel. And these five Vs are said to be the path of this camel up through the abyss, the, the straight shot through the middle pillar. And you need the camel to get there. Uh, this path crosses the wilderness of sand, the desert home of Set, that divides the place of the sun, Tepereth, which would be six, from the place of the hidden god, Kether, or the sun, S-U-N, behind the sun, S-O-N, the trinity in unity beyond the abyss. To the path of Gimel is attributed Atu, or the priestess of the silver star. 
It is her light alone that illuminates the ultimate abyss. Her symbol is the arrow, which she bears at her loins, and which identifies her with the arrow star, a name of Sophus, the star of Set, Sirius. Five Vs are the footprints of her vehicle, the camel, which conveys the traveler across the desert of Set. Alistair Crowley, therefore, represent entirely different expressions of unknown and unknowable identity, which finds its apotheosis in the VVVVV, which means Vivere Universum Vivus Visi, by the power of truth, I, while living, have conquered the universe. The five Vs placed in a certain manner form the angles of the pentagram or five-pointed star. In a magical record entitled John St. John, Crowley showed how a person living in a crowded city could triumph over his environment and achieve the great work. He taught that attainment of the knowledge and conversation of the Holy Guardian Angel is the basic spiritual experience, essential to a discovery of the true will. The formula or word of the will is also the name of the angel, and it is the ultimate and inviolable secret of each individual. The method which Crowley used in his own attainment derived from a Sumerian ritual of an incalculable age, which was translated into English at the turn of the century by C.W. Goodwin under the title A Fragment of the Greco-Egyptian Work Upon Magic. MacGregor Mathers had used it as a preliminary invocation to the Goetia of Solomon the King, which he translated in 1899. Crowley published it in 1904 and again in 1929 after having restored the ritual and explained the barbarous names of evocation. He described it as the most potent invocation extent. The function of magic is to liberate consciousness from the thraldom of individual existence. It permits it to flow into cosmic immensity. The result is a divine madness, an inebriation of the senses which is nonetheless perfectly controlled. The magical will projects consciousness into transmundane dimensions and illumines with the LVX, or the light of Gnosis, the name and nature of the angel. L contains, the Book of the Law contains, the supreme spells for those who have discovered their true wills and who therefore understand the nature of the great work. For others, it is quite dangerous. Crowley considered the crude brand of selfishness characteristic of today's generation to be another indication of elemental infusion into the life wave of human evolution, bringing on an extraterrestrial communication and mutation. It is characteristic of the onset of the reign of the child Horus. Crowley says he rules the present period of 2,000 years, beginning in 1904. Everywhere his government is taking root. Observe for yourselves the decay of the sense of sin, the growth of innocence and irresponsibility, the strange modifications of the reproductive instinct with a tendency to become bisexual or epicene, the childlike confidence in progress combined with nightmare fear of catastrophe against which we are yet half unwilling to take precautions. Kenneth Grant goes on to say that democracy, communism, fascism, and similar political creeds Crowley considered to be immature and abortive borths of the crowned and conquering child, whose new aeon is not yet properly underway. 
knew it, had it. Ra Hor Karit are the chief protagonists of this new aeon. The su- succession of aeons is represented as a defin- definite sequence of images, basically expressive of biological formula. Isis, the woman, Osiris, the man, and Horus, their child. The child conceals within itself its dark double, symbolized by Set. The Horus Hawk, the soul, spiritual soul of light, represents the power of transcending Earth. Its terrestrial shadow is symbolized by the dragon or crocodile, the beast that devours the solar god as it sinks nocturnally and annually below the waters of the western horizon. There is so much I want to say about all of what I'm reading and what I'm showing to you and what it might possibly mean and how it all comes into different expressions. When we start to look at this idea, then we find Obama fighting Apophis, who is this very dragon or crocodile, the beast that devours the solar god. And then we have the Hawk of Horus, which has been symbolized and expressed through so many different fashions, it's ridiculous. Now we find that we have entered into the age of Horus around 1904. And this idea of... uh, The separation and the concealed dark double goes to the altars of mind control and the ideas of the Scarlet Woman. And since I began this with Spielberg, we should touch upon his United States of Terra. When we start to look into the different names that this girl has, such as Buck, Alice, and T, I find this very significant, along with Terra itself, in that Starbuck is the Luciferian character within Mormonism, within the, the secret uh, coatings of Battlestar Galactica and I found of course Starbuck elsewhere and of course you know Starbucks coffee uh, there would be the buck and the tea is that queen tea you gotta wonder and then Alice through the looking glass and Terra or Earth the goddess mother so uh, once again then Spielberg trying to make this all a positive teaching you how wonderful it could be to have this many altars living within you and have the ability to use them as special powers. Just saying. So the beast in Babylon represent the double equinox, and the beast in Babylon conjoined form the androgynous Baphomet, lord of the double horizon, the double wanded one. You'll see that he has uh, the helix coming up out of his uh, phallus region. Horus is described as a god of war and of vengeance. Horus and Ares are Mars, the same, are identical in name and nature. The Greek version of the war god is based upon the Egyptian original, which our word hero derives. Horus, or Heru, was the hero, the solar vanquisher of the demon of darkness, the dragon of the deep, Apophis, or Apep. But the idea of Mars being a god of war and of bloodshed is merely a derivation from the primary one of shedding blood in conception for the first time or taking someone's virginity. Thus, with the Egyptians, Mars was the primeval generative principle. Crowley noticed the the further evidence of the onset of the reign of Horus through uh, the widespread turbulence and the unrest that is coming up in this first decade of the new aeon. He even believed that in 1936, the reissue of El, or the Book of the Law, may have been a part of bringing on the world wars. Crowley says about the baptism of blood, uh, traditionally associated with the birth of a new aeon, 
There is a magical operation of maximum importance, the initiation of a new aeon. When it becomes necessary to utter a word, the whole planet must be bathed in blood. Before man is ready to accept the law of Thelema, the great war must be fought. This bloody sacrifice is the critical point of the world ceremony of the proclamation of Horus, the crowned and conquering child, as Lord of the Aeon. This formula has now changed and has gone from blood to semen. It is uh, the movement from Pisces to Aquarius. So he believed that the baptism of blood by the Great War was not ushering in the new era, the new Aeon, but rather as a farewell to the oblation of the old. Hence Crowley anticipated in later life a spiritual revolution as against bloodshed caused by war and proletariat revolt. These new cycles or aeons bring in different entities. They bring in different energies that are then transmitted to these uh, recipients of the initiation. So the earlier aeons were preaval and nameless, and they were much longer than the 2,000 years that are limited on our current aeons. So the first aeon is the void, nothingness, sometimes called the primal sleep. The second aeon was attributed to chaos, which the phallus is the emblem. And the third aeon, earth, or chaos, stabilized its emblem, the ketis. So they came as the aeon of Isis, Osiris, and Horus whose vehicle was fire or blood of Mars, the five-rayed star of the will. That is the very uh, man that you see from Da Vinci. The Vitruvian man, drawn 400 years before Crowley's initiation into the Golden Dawn. The one place in Crowley's writings where he gives the meaning of the initials AA is in his magical record. The Argentium Astrum, the Silver Star, the true occult key to the nature of the order, which is not expressed by the correct Latin version of its name. Argos derives from Arg or Arca, the female generative power symbolized by the moon, synonymous with the Queen of Heaven. Aster Argos is the lunar or silver star. The lunar component is represented by the eye of Isis, and her star is Sirius the dog star, Set. The order of the silver star is thus the order of the eye of Set, the sun behind the sun, that's S-O-N and S-U-N, represented astronomically by the star of Isis, which is Sothis, which is Sirius. The constellation of which Sirius was the chief star was once named the Phoenix. This is the secret name of Baphomet, or Crowley, as the supreme head of the OTO. I'm going to get into the uh, symbolism of the phoenix in this uh, latest launch to watch the sun and the phoenix project, the other large hadron collider, uh, this Saturday on Oracle Broadcasting and 8 p.m. on the free zone. So if you want to tune in, get into some of the news, some of the, the connections. I mean, when I'm telling you these things, I hope that they're triggering these conscious 
uh, effects because then we're seeing what we what I'm talking about the Ares program going to the Dragon, uh, you know, launched by the Merlin with the Falcon. These are very uh, important, significant, symbolic gestures. So to finally fin- finish this story and to give you the last expression of the five-pointed or seven-pointed, uh, 11-pointed, there we go, the 11-pointed Silver Star. It's actually 7, 11, and 5. Uh, the AA, the Silver Star, is serious. As Har Par Karat, whose formula is silence and strength, he is the undying god beyond our solar system. Horus is the son of this god and the sun of our solar system. Horus is thus Hermacus, sorry, Hermacus, son of the star, Sirius, Sothis, or Set-An, thus represents the supreme eternal light, the star. Therefore, the key to the present aeon of Horus, for it represents the energy of Satan that will permeate the earth during the present cycle. When you start to see the connections, of course, the phoenix went to Mars, right? Uh, you start to understand that Jet Propulsion's laboratory, started by Jack Parsons, was uh, a high member of the OTO, that the people in charge of your Large Hadron Colliders like Atlas and Alice and Phoenix and Star uh, are occultists trying to break through the other dimension. What I missed in this was Crowley's attempt to bring in this evolutionary light wave to dispel the aura of evil and to bring in this extraterrestrial and alien entity as an expansion of consciousness from within to embrace other stars and to absorb their energies into a system that is thereby enriched and rendered truly cosmic by the process. Such an attitude is possible only to the one who has crossed the abyss and dissolve the illusion of egocentricity or separate individual existence. This gets so much deeper, it goes so much farther, and I know I'm going to be pulling more and more of this out to to, uh, try and get deeper into understanding who our leaders are and what they are up to, and if this really has to do with Satan. Now, if you realize, Horus would be the representative of, of Jesus as well, the son of the sun, in the same symbolism between Horus and Set and Jesus and Satan. Uh, what does it all mean? Where does it all go? Why is it incorporated in our children's cartoons and being programmed into the youth and minds of today? This is the questions we need to ask. And we need to believe that they believe in all of this power, and we must understand that they have been controlling us for a long, long time. And this power is something that we need to understand and reflect upon so that we know which direction to go. Because right now, it's being shown that we are cast adrift, and we need to flow with that and know that there are helping hands and loving hands that are out there to catch us along the way and to carry us and to inform and give us knowledge so that we can maybe come through this new aeon without being under the heralding arms of Satan. (laughs) I never thought I'd say that. (laughs) Well, thank you for tuning in. This is Radio Freeman. I hope I uh, helped blow your mind a little bit. That is my main goal, to help you start to wonder what the hell is really going on on planet Earth. And I hope you'll continue to tune in, download, and check out Radio Freeman here on Revere Radio. Thank you so much. I 
hope uh, I just only hope to do my best for you and to give you what I hope will help us change the world for the better. Till next time, this is Freeman saying I love you all. Good night. Thank you.